How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 145 of x Labs, where, well, we've got us a milestone. It's uh, not an x lapsed milestone, but it is a mutant milestone. This is the 300, or allegedly the 350th issue of uh, Wolverine here, or 350 solo adventures, which uh, discounts, uh, well, a whole lot of Wolverine solo adventures, but... Uh, what are you going to do? It gives us an excuse to have a, uh oversized issue and uh, kick off a few story threads and, uh, well, let's just get into it. Let's get into it here. Uh, this is Wolverine Volume 7, Number 8, at a February 2021 cover date with a legacy number of 350. We got two stories this issue. The first is called War Stories. The second is The Past Ain't Dead, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Adam Cubitt and Victor Bogdanovic. Colors, Antonio Fabella and Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Amaro, Basso, White, Sobolski, cover price $5. And this one went on sale December 30th of 2020. So, 350 issues of Wolverine, eh? Uh, should we do that thing where we engage in the voodoo math that Marvel had to employ to get us here? Um, if you're familiar with Marvel's legacy program, you'll know, you'll know just how fast and loose they are as it, as it pertains to, like, what counts as part of a series' legacy. If you remember Marvel Legacy back in 2017, 2018, they put out those infographics, right? And they were (laughs) downright labyrinthine in their presentation here, um... To get their legacy books up to a nice round number or, or close enough to a round number where they'll hit that round number with the quickness. I mean, they pulled one-shots, miniseries, various bits and bobs here. Sometimes from like, like arcs from whole other series in order to justify reaching or getting close to a milestone. I remember some that jumped out at me was uh, like Avengers. It would like include... One or two of the volumes of New Avengers, but not the third or fourth. Um, and also, it would be like Mighty Avengers was in there, but not all of it. And then all new, all different Avengers was in there, but again, not all of it. Um, Hulk, Hulk would have uh, Incredible Hulk would have like bits and pieces from the Red Hulk series integrated into its uh, into its legacy numbering. Indestructible Hulk was part of it. Um, Amazing Spider-Man had Superior Spider-Man as part of its legacy numbering It's uh, pretty wild stuff here And, uh, I mean, the thing of it is, it was all a moot point anyway, right? It didn't amount to anything, considering that each and every one of these books 
was relaunched at least once uh, to a new number one at, at this point anyway. So what we're going to do, we're going to check out the old internet, and we're going to find out how Marvel reached the conclusion that uh, Wolverine Volume 7 Number 8 is actually the 350th issue. This is to say we're not counting things like Wolverine Origins, we're not counting Wolverine Max, we're not counting Wolverine The Best There Is, we're not counting any number of the miniseries that he was in, any number of the one-shots he was in. We're even dismissing the first four-issue Wolverine miniseries, the Claremont Miller one, which, I mean, that tells me right there that this isn't an actual milestone. Because had they included that, Wolverine number four would have been the 350th, but that one wouldn't have been extra-sized, so I guess they decided to hold off. Now, let's see here. We start with Wolverine's first ongoing series, so Volume 2, and that ran 189 issues. The second ongoing, or Volume 3, that launched uh, with a Greg Rucka storyline. That would run 74 issues, right? But here's the thing. It would change its name to Dark Wolverine with issue 75, shifting focus from Logan to Dakin Dakin during the Dark Rain days. And so, right around that time, Logan had yet another ongoing launch in Wolverine colon Weapon X, and that ran a whopping 16 issues, which we're counting for the legacy. Wolverine Volume 4, that opened with the Jason Aaron Wolverine and Hell story that we referenced uh, back during Exit 10s, That one ran for 20 issues, but with its 21st issue, it would actually take the legacy numbering back with issue 300. So, I mean, even the first time we went back to the legacy numbering, we left out that first miniseries. I don't remember what was going on back then. I don't know if there was a reason why they held off instead of counting the uh, Claremont Miller story. Don't know. Now, the legacy numbering would run from issue 300 up to 317, And then it would be relaunched again. Wolverine Volume 5 was the first of two Paul Cornell, Alan Davis volumes. I want to say this was part of Marvel now, but I could be mistaken. And this one ran a mind-blowing 13 issues. Volume 6, which kept the same creative team. And the same trade dress that would run an amazing, absolutely phenomenal 12 issues. I'm not sure why it was relaunched in the first place, uh, other than to say it's Marvel, and that's what Marvel does. Now we're in volume number seven, which at this point, at the point of this episode, right, has eight issues. That gets us neatly and tidily to Wolverine number 350. Aren't you glad you asked? Well, let's just get into it. Um, We open with a battle-ravaged Wolverine emerging from the Krakoan gateway that he had left in Jeff Bannister's backyard a few issues ago. Now, Bannister offers him a brew as it looks like he's in dire need of one. He then asks to hear about what happened, but Logan ain't in the mood to talk. He's here for some CIA business and nothing more. Bannister gets it. The CIA's got secrets, so why wouldn't the mutant CIA and X-Force have theirs? We're, we're drawing parallels here, you see. Now, Jeff figures that he'd rather, that rather than chat about the here and now, maybe they just swap old war stories because he's sure Wolverine's got plenty. Now, Logan assures him that even though he left a Krakoan gate in his yard, that don't exactly make him family. Bannister decides to grease the wheels a bit. He'll tell his story first in hopes that Logan will share one afterwards. And so, we get Jeff Bannister's war story. 
Now, he was sent on a mission by the CIA to take out some enemy combatants, only to find out after the fact that the people he murdered were actually Americans who were approaching the enemy in hopes of brokering a peace deal with them, thus ending the conflict. But the American war machine didn't want the war to end, you see, and so these peaceniks were taken out. And the whole thing was blamed on terrorists, which Bannister concedes they were, in fact, terrorists on that day. It's your basic don't-trust-the-government story. Uh, We get plenty of these during wartime and when a creator didn't vote for whoever's currently in power. These are nothing new to us. Now, Wolverine asked Bannister why he would ever stick with the CIA after such a thing, and uh, rather than saying for the money or for the benefits, Jeff suggests that uh, he thinks he can do more from within. Yeah, likely story. Next, it's Wolverine's turn, and so he prefaces with the fact that he's got, he's got a Swiss cheese memory, which I could have sworn had been rectified, but uh, whatever. And so we get a page of some reddish sepia-colored memories here. We see Wolverine in costume killing some dudes. Wolverine in street clothes, killing some dudes. Wolverine in his Weapon X helmet, fighting sentinels? (laughs) Okay, I don't remember that story. Now, the story he's going to tell finally begins. And it's a throwback to his time on Team X. I suppose maybe in the current current landscape it might be Team 10, uh, but I'm never going to call them that. Uh, Now, Team X, that's the crew we learned a bit about during Omega Red's uh, first storyline back in 1992. Now, the main team that we focus on, and we focused on back then, was Wolverine, Sabretooth, and that fella on the cover, who we don't see all that often, Maverick. Now, this story also has to do with senseless destruction. You see, Team X is sent via the CIA to an oil platform, and they fight their way through, kill a bunch of dudes, suffer a bunch of injuries, and blow the thing up. All for nothing more than the CIA's profit. Bannister puts his hand on Logan's shoulder, offers him help, and suggests that maybe they get some war wounds together. You know, they work together and just hope for a better future, I suppose. Um, He then warns of some behind-the-behind-the-scenes stuff that's afoot. This is in the form of the X-Desk. As he says this, we can see X-Desker, Dolores What's-Her-Face, looking on, and uh, she appears to be... uh, Quite sinister. Even though, uh, when we saw her chatting up Storm on the subway over on that Marauders issue, she was presented as an ally, right? Um, I mean, she even helped out with that Hominus Verinde deal, didn't she? Uh, Makes me wonder, are the X-Writers not paying attention to uh, the entire line? Well, it wouldn't shock me if they're not. Um, From here, double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred. We're going to be paying attention to the following characters. Wolverine, Omega Red, Scout, Dakin Dakin, Sage, Beast, and Jeff Bannister. Now from here, we change directions a bit. Uh, We leave the Bogdanovic art behind and move into Cubertville. And we spend five pages watching a black ops group break into what the story refers to as a U.S. government black site. Now one of these masked folks makes his way in. He uses a key card to access this storage room, and in it he finds Logan's Team X dog tag, and he pockets it. I think we can probably assume that this is Maverick, because it sure ain't Sabretooth. Uh, at least I hope it's not, <laughs> because uh, there's no way we'll be able to explain our way through that. Next stop, we shift scenes to Krakoa, where Omega Red is minding his own business, trying to 
hunt a bear or a boar or a beast of some sort. This turns out to be a trap. He gets snagged and hoisted up by a tree branch. You know that whole cartoon thing where you, where like a Elma Fudd would put like a like a a rope with like a carrot in the middle of it, and like when Bugs Bunny would step on it, like the rope would shoot up and he'd hang from the tree. Basically, that it's just Omega Red hanging upside down. He's then attacked by Scout and Dakin Dakin. And uh, I gotta say, thank goodness X-23 ain't here Because that's another toughie that we'd have to explain Now Red manages to hold his own quite well against the two But then Wolverine himself shows up He accuses Arcady of a bunch of shenanigans All of which Omega Red denies You see, Red claims not to be working for the Vampire Nation Nor is he working for the Russians Nor did he follow Wolverine to that bar back in issue 4 And plunge him in the ice he suggests that Wolverine himself might be mesmerized at the moment. To which, the Logan family all retract their claws and suggest that they pick up this fight on another day. In fairness to Omega Red, and with all credit due, uh, he was doing quite well against Wolverine here. He uh, actually had him tied up in his tendrils, and it looked like if he wanted to, he might have won the fight. So here's the question. When did this scene happen? Was this after Beast killed him over an X-Force? Which would let it lead us to assume that this is post-resurrection? Or was this before Gene attempted to look into his mind? Hmm, maybe we'll find out soon. First, an info page. It's called The Singing Stones. And I think it was Damien who suggested that Ben Percy needs an intervention when it comes to these info pages, and this is definitely another sign of that. These are transcriptions of Krakoan surveillance, and this page is probably twice as dense as it needs to be. Uh, The only one that's probably worth discussing is the fact that the New Mutant religion is a growing concern in the established religious community. Not sure which one, but we could probably safely assume that it's the Catholic Pope expressing concern. And we know this is actually leading somewhere with the upcoming Way of X series. Maybe not so much with the Pope, but there is the religion afoot. We jump back to comics, and we've got Sage and Beast introducing Wolverine to a place that they call the Shadow Room. And it looks kind of like Tron, if you're familiar with Tron. Anywho, they fill Logan in on just what went down at that U.S. government black site. Beast deduced that this was a targeted attack, having to do with Team X memorabilia. Wolverine wonders why anybody would be interested in that, and, uh, you know what? I gotta agree with our hairy little titular hero. But we'll get there. Beast also calls Logan out on his skirmish with Omega Red, which surprises Logan a bit, because how would Beast know, right? Well, that might just answer our question as to when this story is taking place. If you remember, Beast had those surveillance and tracking doohickeys added to Red Sea Synth, which would have been implanted post-resurrection. So, credit where it's due. This is a great use of a seemingly throwaway line in order to confirm exactly where we are in the story. And uh, I really dig it. I really dig it. We're not beaten over the head with it. It's actually subtle. And uh, I really, really like it. So credit definitely where it's due. Sage then informs Wolverine that one of the mercenaries who broke into the black site was a mutant You see, he bled a little bit during the mission, and they know it's mutant blood, but can't confirm who's mutant blood. They have a sneaking suspicion it's Maverick, which suggests to me that they just read the solicitation for this issue. They further suggest that he's under some sort of mind control, because why the hell not? 
info page all about the Mercs, which is a Mavericks uh, group, very, very creatively named group. There's also some Xeno stuff, which after 15 issues of X-Force and 8 issues of Wolverine, I was kind of hoping we'd be done with by now. Um, There's also a mention of Trevor Crosby, the former owner of Domino's Dog and, you know, sea monster meal, Rufus. He's apparently been sent back out into the field by Beast as as something of an unwitting double agent, I think. From here, we jump back into comics, and we rejoin the Mercs as they attempt to break into Dazzler's house. Why Dazzler's house? Huh. Well, I have a suspicion, simply going off of what the cover to the next issue looks like, but we will get there. Anyway, the Mercs are attacked by some electric light security system of sorts. It basically looks like they're being stampeded by a whole bunch of wolves. And also, uh, Wolverine. He's here too. Our hero snags Crosby in order to question him about Maverick. We learn that Maverick started up this crew of Mercs, but it's not Maverick's fault, it's Krakoa's fault. You see, once Krakoa declared its sovereignty, there was a cutback to wartime efforts which left a whole bunch of mercenaries and black ops types out of work and uh, quite bored. He further reveals that they're working for a place called Legacy House, and they are curators of superhero and supervillain collectibles, hence collecting Wolverine's dog tags and busting into Dazzler's house, hopeful that they might find a quarry there. Now, next issue's cover implies that we're going to be sitting in on an auction, and so this legacy house is going to need commodities to be bid on. There you go. Now, before Crosby is able to spill any more of the beans, he gets sniped. He's dead. From here, we shift over to Madripoor, where Wolverine has readopted his patch persona in order to sit in on legacy house's dealings. Sage informs him that she's procured his invitation to the affair from, quote, the Dark Web. Um, ben Percy sure loves him some Dark Web, don't he? It's kind of the uh, catch-all for nefariousness. And so, we wrap up with Patch about to enter room 13 of some hotel ready to do some bidding. It's worth noting the Patch reveal is treated like some sort of gigantic ta-da sort of thing, even though anybody who's ever read an issue Wolverine before saw this coming a mile away. But... That's where we leave it, the big milestone, 350th sort of kind of issue of Wolverine. Next episode, we hopefully get things sorted out over in X-Men. But how about we talk about this one? I gotta say, I'm pretty surprised to, uh, to be coming out of this one thinking so positively about it. I really enjoyed this issue. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um... The, uh, there were there were little bits of it that dragged. I mean, it is an oversized issue, um, but I really like the idea of this auction house. Now, this is something I'm I'm sure has been done before. I just don't know that I've ever seen it done before. And I really like um, I like the idea of a legacy house out there collecting you know bits and bobs from the characters and uh, and auctioning them off to Lord knows who. I guess we'll find out next issue. I think that's. Uh, that's really cool stuff here, and I like that it um, the formation of Krakoa almost facilitated it in that um, all these uh, black ops types and mercenaries, uh, they suddenly don't have a whole lot of work to do. So they are uh, they're taking odd jobs. 
They're taking odd jobs collecting collectibles to be uh, auctioned off. I like that. Um, what I mean, the Maverick stuff is a little too convenient, I think. I mean, I don't... Had we not uh, had the Jeff Bannister and Wolverine conversation in the beginning, I think the potentially Maverick reveal uh, might have meant a little bit more because it just felt so telegraphed. And then again... I mean, I don't know where that conversation's taking place. That conversation might be taking place at the end of the story. You know, this could be Wolverine telling the story to Bannister. It wasn't made uh, abundantly clear if that was the case, but it also wasn't made clear that it wasn't. So perhaps that's why he's talking about uh, Maverick with Bannister. But if it is, like, linearly being told here, if the Bannister bit happens before everything else, then it seems a little bit contrived. Um... But really, other than that, not a whole heck of a lot happened here. I think I was just so taken by the concept of uh, of that auction house because it's just not something I've seen done, as far as I can remember, in an X-book yet. So I think this is pretty cool, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes, and I'm looking forward to seeing... Yeah, I mean, there might be some interesting folks in the crowd doing the bidding. Uh, I think that uh, that could be a fun time. Uh, the art here, eh, phenomenal stuff here. Kubert uh, and uh, Bogdanovic are wonderful artists, but I feel like um, <laughs> I don't want oversized issues of Wolverine every couple of months that have both artists involved in them, just introducing the new stories, like the Kubert the story and the Bogdanovic story. I mean, we had that in Wolverine number one, and here we have it again in Wolverine number eight. I don't want us to get to Wolverine number 13 and have another book like this because this is kind of like, you know me, I love the bubbling subplot. I love the Claremontian classic traditional comic book storytelling, the, uh, the serialized, you know, bubble away in the background sort of thing. This isn't that. What we're getting is we're getting these... These, not subplots, we're just getting plots dropped in our lap here I mean, let's go back to the first the first issue here We got the Pale Girl and the Vampire Nation plots These aren't subplots, these are just like, okay, these are the direction, go, right? Out of those two, we've only wrapped up one The Pale Girl is done for now So we still have the Vampire Nation thing cooking and now we get two more, not subplots, just plots dropped on us here. We have the X-Desk situation with Bannister and Wolverine. And we have Legacy House with Wolverine and potentially Maverick. And I mean, that's not a bad thing, but I think it might overstay its welcome if we just keep doing it this way. It doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel like the stories are kind of just... I know we don't want stories to bleed into one another with how stories are being told nowadays with collectability in the trade format, but this just feels like so abrupt. It's like, okay, here we're going to open up the next trade, so here's your plot. Go. I don't want that. <laughs> I really don't want that. But at least, uh, you know, the, the Legacy House plot is interesting. Looking forward to it. The X-Desk one, not so much. Uh, especially when uh, Dolores What's-Her-Face is being presented. It's like we met Dolores on the subway with Storm, and it was just them talking. Here, it's almost as though Dolores took a flashlight and put it under her chin <laughs> and glowed it up to make herself look sinister and uh, underhanded, and that's the character we're dealing with. I, 
It doesn't feel consistent, and it feels like it might be a... I don't know, just like kind of like low-hanging fruit for a uh, antagonist. Hopefully this is just a bit of misdirection, or maybe I'm just projecting a sinisterness onto her because of the way the light reflected off her face. But uh, I, I'm hoping that they keep this consistent with how the how the X-Desk, or at least Dolores of the X-Desk, has been presented uh, before. Maybe she was uh, mesmerized by Storm, and that's why she was so nice. I really don't know. But uh, overall, I... I think this this book has a problem with milestones. Uh, we talked about issue one not feeling like the launch of a new ongoing series, and here we have this you know special legacy numbering number three fifty, and it doesn't really feel like a milestone. It feels like a good issue, but it doesn't feel like a uh, a milestone. But uh, what are you gonna do? They're not all gonna feel that way, and uh, at least I was able to enjoy it for what it was, and what it was was a Fairly decent issue, which we don't often get in the Wolverine solo book But uh, that's all I got to say about this milestone issue I look forward to hearing your guys' thoughts If you agree, disagree, have anything you'd like to add to the conversation Please, please feel free to do so Speaking of which, let's hop into the mailbag here We're going to start with Damien talking about X-Factor number 5 he says, I'm really enjoying X-Factor at the moment. Leia Williams and David Baldion are doing great work. They really are producing work that could only work in comics, like the sequence following the map at the Boneyard. It's great to see work in comics that doesn't feel like a discarded film script. They also do a fantastic job of character work. I actually find myself caring about characters like Dick and Dackett, who I previously found insufferable. And that's a great point. That's a, a, Both of those points are great points. Um... I am a huge sucker for the uh, for the uh, cross section <laughs> sort of thing. We talked about it during the X Factor book. Uh, we got the cross section of the Boneyard where we, and, and I, I believe I mentioned it during the discussion there. Um, we got like the the schematic, so we knew exactly what rooms did what. And then on the very on the back of that same page, we saw the same thing, but just not as a schematic, just as a picture. And we saw panels. Jumping around the uh, boneyard Showing characters uh, Just uh, interacting And uh, having a good time And it, it really One fed into the other And it did so just just perfectly well It really, really served To um, move the story forward And give us It made the boneyard feel Feel lived in You know, and ha- inhabited And I thought that was very, very well done here And also, uh, your second point about uh, Dakin Dakin here. When we started X Factor, I knew very little about Dakin Dakin. I only knew a bit about him from hey, the Dark Wolverine series that we mentioned earlier in the episode. I knew a little bit about him from there, and I believe he was. I want to say he died, and he came back as a horseman for the Apocalypse Twins over in Uncanny Avengers. I think it was like Dakin, um, Grim Reaper, Banshee, and somebody... Sentry? Maybe the Sentry? I think it might have been the Sentry, were the uh, horsemen of the Apocalypse Twins. And that's all I really knew about him. I didn't know much, so when we got X-Factor number one, and he just became the very the hypersexual guy... And I mean, I understand he's got pheromonal powers, or I don't even know if pheromonal's a word, but I assume you guys know what I'm talking about. 
he just became like a one-note character, and I thought that's the way he was going to be played for that point on. I thought it was just going to be like, okay, we need a, we need a, a, some levity. Let's bring in, uh, you know, Dakin so he can flirt with whoever's nearby, right? That seemed to be his his only role in that first issue of uh, of X Factor, and even into the second issue, which was uh, one of my all time least favorites that we discussed on this program, but. As for now, it's so bizarre. The 180 I've done on this character, just like Damien, um, he is a welcome sight on the page now. I, I'm really, really digging his uh, his relationship with Aurora here. I could think I could do without him working on his etchings, but uh, I really love the uh, the relationship that he has with Aurora here. I don't understand it yet. We, I don't think any of us know what, exactly how, how deep or how far it goes, but it's fun. It's really fun. And we have this guy who's been presented as a hypersexualized, overly confident guy who almost appears to be sheepish around Aurora. He's still got a, a bit of cockiness to him, but he also seems more reserved. Like, he doesn't want to screw this up. You know, he, he seems to value the potential uh, of this relationship, and uh, and it, it's it's almost adorable. Uh, it's really, really good stuff. Now, Damien continues, I love that the people in the story are discussing the resurrection protocols and the crucible. They're not just stories to them, they are the background to their lives. Talking of the crucible, I can't wait for you to get to its return. It appears in a fantastic story that you'll get to very soon. Well, my interest is piqued. I am definitely looking forward to that. I was worried that uh, Hickman kind of just said, like, okay, there's a crucible. I told, I showed you. I told you about it. And it's done, <laughs> you know? Because we haven't really seen or heard anything of it. And I think, I, I, I don't remember who asked, but somebody had asked if, if this X-Factor issue was the only other time we ever heard of the Crucible, and I was struggling to think of of times other than X-Men number 7 and X-Factor number 5 where the Crucible did come up. I don't know that it did. So to hear that it's on its way back, hopefully that'll answer some questions about who's manning it now that Apocalypse is gone, and what are, what are these characters thinking? You know, how do they feel about it? So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Thank you for letting me know that it's on the way, because... Uh, I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to see it and talk about it with you all. Now, Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Amazing Baby stars in a reboot of Homeward Bound with Jeff the Landshark and Ms. Lion, <laughs> make my neck lapsed. They should do that. They definitely should do that. I mean, Jeff should come. I mean, we, we got first we got to get we got to get Gwenpool into X Factor, right? We got to hashtag Gwenpool for X Factor, the number four because it's it's you know the kids use numbers instead of words, right? So hashtag Gwenpool for number four X Factor, Gwenpool for X Factor. So we'll get her in that book, right? We'll force their hand. We will be the dozens. That, that push Gwenpool into X-Factor. Then Jeff the Landshark can come and visit his old owner. We got Amazing Baby there already. Bingo, bango. We got it done. See, that's that's what we need to do. That is, that is the new mission statement of this program. We'll have Amazing Baby and Jeff the Landshark hang out. It's got to happen. And if it does happen, even by accident, we will, all of us, the X-Lapsed Extended X-Family, will take... Full and complete credit for it. 
no matter what. So there's that. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on a wonderful issue of X Factor, Damien. I always love hearing from you. Uh, next up, we got a couple from Evan here. And this one, this is one I probably should have shared in the last episode here. This is about X-Men Red Annual number one here, and it kind of goes with uh, his discussion of X-Factor Volume 1 number one, which he read for uh, some context on the weird Chris Claremont Corsair Cyclops story in X-Men The Exterminated. So, he says, I also noticed a parallel between this issue, meaning X-Factor number one, and X-Men Red Annual number one. Jean returning and wanting to take action, make up for lost time, and improve the world. In both cases, she, out of the, as you put it, the X-Men Den Mother role, the only role those of us who took the X-Plunge early in Volume 2 have ever seen her in, I wonder if there was an intentional parallel here. In this issue, we even saw Mr. Fantastic and Angel getting pelted with aluminum cans, no doubt filled with high fructose corn syrup and prejudice. I could give them one of those lines, but two in rapid succession by two different characters is too much. And, you know, it's funny. I, I think I think to suggest that um, they drew parallels uh, between the two issues is giving the creators way too much credit. <laughs> I'd love to see... I mean, pat- when you when you look for patterns, they they just show up. Sometimes I, I'm I do that all the time. That's something I love doing. <laughs> it's something I can't help but to do. And I'd love that if this was if this was the case here. I just I just don't give the creators that much credit. But uh, I I love the picture you shared on the Facebook group of Mister Fantastic getting pelted with a can. And uh, yes, it's it's full of a. Uh, you know, diet coke and uh, and bigotry, <laughs> and that is a that is a reference to uh, some lines in X Men Red Annual One that uh, really turned me off and stopped me from ever trying the main X Men Red volume. Uh, I haven't read any of it yet. Um, I I will, I will, I I definitely will. But uh, X Men Red Annual was the first X-Men Red book I read. And I read it for a podcast that I appeared on that uh, suffered technical difficulties and thankfully never aired because I was pretty brutal about this issue. And I kind of got stuck on this one page. I was... Uh, <laughs> I really just couldn't couldn't bring myself to enjoy it, is the thing. I Because there is a page in this book where... Um, and forgive me if I shared this already on the main X-Lapsed program. I, I tend to talk a lot, and I don't retain much of what I say. So I might be repeating myself here. And if I am, I apologize. And if you heard this spiel on the X-Men Red Annual episode, I apologize for the repetition. But uh, Nightcrawler and Jean Grey go to Central Park, where Nightcrawler has a hot dog thrown at him. Jean freezes it in midair. Nightcrawler plucks it out of midair, takes a bite of it, and says that it tastes like mustard and bigotry. Which, I mean, is cringe enough as it is. But then Jean, like, totally flips her lid and grabs the guy, or psychically grabs the guy who threw the hot dog and says something along the lines of, like, how dare you throw a bun full of processed meat and hate at my friend. And um, that's where I checked out. The first time I read it, but since this is an all-inclusive program, I had to read the whole thing, and it wasn't a t- 
terrible issue, but it was not a strong one either. So I love the fact that Mr. Fantastic was getting pelted with cans, <laughs> right as we were talking about uh, Nightcrawler having a hot dog of hate thrown in his direction. <laughs> but uh, Evan also shares with us his X of Tens tier list, his Festival of Swords tiers. And this is something I'm trying to find a website. I know, do you remember tier lists, right? You have like the S tier, the A tier, the, you know, the, the tiers where you rank things. Uh, by uh, I, They were all over social media like a year or two ago. I'm looking for a website to where I can actually put together one of these tier lists here. and Maybe make one that's like interactable, right? So we can all rank our X of Tens tier lists here. And uh, Evan says, because no one demanded it, but you did ask, here are my tears, right? Number one, the best of the bunch. He says the, his favorite issues from Exitens were Hellions number six, which was a wonderful issue. Marauders number 13 and 14, which was the dinner party, wonderful issues. And New Mutants number 13, which wasn't a bad issue, just not one of my favorites here. Evan does qualify this one by saying, I'm sticking with this one. Maybe it's because I haven't read a lot of Cypher stories, and this one didn't feel repetitive to me. Now, if you remember that issue, it was magic training Doug on how to uh, how to be a little bit more um, adaptable and usable on the battlefield here. And that's basically <laughs> like all of Doug's stories. Uh, maybe not with magic so much, but it's always about making him what he's not. And uh, it wasn't a bad story. It wasn't a bad story, and it actually telegraphed the uh, his pending nuptials. But uh, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't put it in my top tier. Uh, now, Evan's second tier, which he qualifies as good stuff, that includes Exoswords Creation number one, Hellions number five, Cable number six, Excalibur number fifteen, and X of Swords Destruction number one. Now, outside of bumping Hellions up to the you know top tier, uh, I think I would agree with everything you have here. Uh, the opening and closing, they were, you know, they were good. They were good stories. Um, cable number six, I believe that's the one where Cable lost his fight to um, to Bay. And also where we saw Gorgon take on uh, the White Sword and the Hundred, which was a wonderful issue. Really good issue. Really, uh, really subverted expectations there. Because up till that point, we saw the X-Men losing, or the Krakoans, I should say, losing very, very badly. And here they caught up and actually took the lead very briefly in the uh, Gorgon versus the Hundred fight. So really, really good issue. His third tier, which he calls the OK Books, X-Factor number four, Marauders number 13, X-Assort Stasis number one, X-Force 14, and X-Men 15. Now, X-Factor number four, I would probably bump up a level here. That was where we found out about uh, the Resurrection Protocols not working uh, the right way. <laughs> if, uh, you, if you perish in Otherworld, you come back as a, an amalgamation of all the potentials that you might be, or, or a smattering of the potentials that you might be, and we saw Rockslide come back as a, uh, as a you know, weird version of himself, a twisted, split-up version of himself. I thought that was a very, very good issue. I think uh, the rest of the books I would uh, I would agree with you on. The Storm Solo issue was okay. Uh, Stasis was also just okay in that... Was Stasis, and I mean, all these books kind of, uh, kind of come together for me. I think Stasis is where we paid a lot of attention to the Iraqi contingent and how they got their swords. 
And rather than spending 10 issues getting their swords, they spent about 10 pages <laughs> all getting their swords. And then we brought the uh, the Krakoans over to Otherworld, to the Starlight Citadel, where they went to their bedrooms and had the uh, tarot cards waiting for them. I believe that was Stasis. And then we found out that Genesis was still alive. Uh, level 4 for Evan is the Not My Cup of Tea books. And those are Excalibur 13 and 14, Wolverine number 7, X-Men 13, and X-Men 14. Yep, yep, <laughs> I agree there. Uh, though X-Men 14, I I would bump down to even lower than that, because that is the, the retelling of X-Men number 12. And I hated that. <laughs> I really, really disliked that. Uh, the bottom tier for Evan is, uh, well, he just calls it Wolverine in Hell. And that is Wolverine number 6 and X-Force number 13, which were probably um, X-Men not, number 14 notwithstanding, probably the weakest chapters of X of 10s there. Overlong, unnecessarily long. Uh, we did not need 40 pages of Wolverine getting his Muramasa. We certainly didn't need that. But thank you so much for sharing your tier list here. I love that you that you did this. It's so cool to uh, to see this, and I definitely want to try to figure out a way to where I can maybe make like a like a drag and droppable tier list for this, and uh, we can share it, and uh, we can all compare our tier lists. I just gotta figure out how to do that. I'm not terribly technically savvy. If anybody knows how I might be able to go about doing that, please. Feel free to let me know. But thanks again, Evan. I really, really appreciate it. But that's going to do it for the mailbag today. If anybody would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com and xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. You can talk with us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of audio, mostly or actually completely comics-related. Uh, you can go over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Drop a subscription, a like, uh, whatever it is that people drop on uh, podcasts that are, that are positive, of course. I, I would definitely appreciate it. And while on that subject, if you do dig the show, or at least appreciate the effort behind it, please do me a favor and just spread the word. Share the uh, share the show. Let folks know that it exists and it's a thing, and uh, hopefully it's a thing they might enjoy. But that's going to do it for today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me and allowing me to be part of yours. Uh, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 150 of X-Lapsed. Uh, hey, it's a milestone, uh, kind of a low-key one. I'm not making too big a deal out of it, uh, like I did with 50 and 100, so this is just going to be a regular old episode of X-Lapsed. Uh, I do want to uh, say that with this episode, X-Lapsed has now become the uh, longest project, or I guess most Episodes of a project that I've been involved in um, from start to current um, The Cosmic Treadmill uh, had 149 episodes that have been uploaded I do have an 150th that I'm really, really dragging my feet on uh, putting out for a variety of reasons I'm sure many of you out there uh, can uh, understand that uh, uh, Putting that out would be kind of closing a door And it's, it's just something that's Kind of hard for me to do So it's just there, unfinished, waiting for me to finish it So it's still kind of a part of Yeah, I'm still kind of working on it It's a... I don't know, maybe I'm just being weird But today, X-Lapsed 150 And we've got a uh, banger of an issue to discuss And it's not a Wolverine story uh, If you're following along with the show You know that like every milestone we, c- we come across here Wolverine's heavily involved And uh, not today, thankfully Instead, we have a uh, very interesting issue of Marauders to discuss, so let's get right on in. Uh, this is Marauders number 17. Had a March 2021 cover date. The story's called The Winds of Change. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali. Colors Edgar Delgado. Letters VCs Corey Petit. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X Hickman. Edits Bisa White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. This one went on sale January the 13th of 2021. Now we open in the not-so-long-ago. Uh, it's a retelling of the scene where Emma Frost reads Lockheed's mind to find out all about Shaw's atrocities the night that uh, Call Me Kate perished. But from here, we actually get a little bit new information. She telepathically calls out to Callisto to try and track down Shinobi Shaw, which they do. And he's at the Green Lagoon sharing drinks with Christian Frost. Now, Emma telepathically calls him... Uh, Shinobi outside to run him through a mind scan She ultimately concludes that Shinobi had nothing to do With what Sebastian got up to that night uh, He's, relatively speaking, innocent here uh, So she mind wipes him of, the, of their confrontation And she sends him back into the bar From here, our double page spread of roll call and cred We're gonna be focusing on Emma Frost, Shinobi Shaw, Christian Frost, Callisto, Storm, Sebastian Shaw, Bishop, and Call Me Kate. Now we come back to comics with Storm and Callisto having a chat. Now Callisto wonders if Storm has gotten around to telling Emma and Call Me Kate that she's leaving. Uh, what? (laughs) Was she planning on telling us that she's leaving? Uh, Weird, I I wonder what they've got planned for her, if anything at all. Anyway, uh, Callisto is here to talk about something very near and dear to us here at X-Lapsed, and that's the Crucible. 
Now you see, Callisto was depowered way back on M-Day by the, uh, you know, the pain in the ass and every teenager's new favorite comics character who they didn't even realize was a comic character until a few weeks ago, the Scarlet Witch. Now, she's never gotten her powers back, and now she'd like to remedy that by going through the crucible here. She also never got her disgusting tentacle arms back from that horrible Claremont Excalibur series. I'm not sure if she wants those back, though. Now, the gimmick here is, since Apocalypse is gone, he's in a menth, they don't have a regular, I don't know, host of the thing? Huh? And so, those who wish to go through the Crucible and have been accepted as going through the Crucible need to bring their own, for lack of a better term, sponsor, maybe? I don't know. It'll later be, later be referred to as a Kaisha Kunin, uh, which was the person designated to behead a person who's performed seppuku. That is, you know, Japanese ritual suicide, of course. Now, Kalisto wishes for Storm to do her that honor and end her uh, ordinariness and suffering. Storm declines but offers up Logan in her stead. Kalista does not relish the thought of being sliced and diced by Wolverine, and uh, you know she even goes as far as to attempt to remind Storm how much Storm herself once wanted to become whole again and have her powers. Now, this is uh, almost definitely a callback to the life-death era, where Storm was depowered for a, a time during the probably third quarter of the Claremont run. From here, we go to an info page, and it's, an, it's a memo from Emma Frost basically spelling out all of the changes to the Hellfire Trading Company that were put into play after the uh, revenge porn last issue. From here, we jump to Mykonos in the Faroe Islands. Wow, I was wondering when, we, when or if we'd ever see this place again. Now, this, of course, was the island that Magneto arranged with Namor to get for Emma during that weird giant size X-Men colon Magneto issue. You can check out episode 78 of this program for more on that. Which reminds me that that was quite a long time ago. That was like half the project ago. Wild. Anyway, Emma chats up the groundskeeper. It's the same dude we met in Giant Size. And uh, she tells him that he's welcome to stay here. However, there's going to be one night a year where he'll likely be inconvenienced. And uh, she's most likely talking about the Hellfire Gala, which will very likely be taking place here. Now, it's worth noting that Emma is wheeling Sebastian Shaw around in his wheelchair, and he appears to be quite cognizant and with it. You know, his last issue ended, I was unsure if he still had any sort of mental faculties. Um, here, it's made pretty clear that he does, and he can speak, he can argue, he can uh, express himself verbally. Now, they arrive at the weird sentinel-headed citadel thing, and outside it are Bishop, Shinobi, and Christian. Now, upon seeing Shinobi, Emma makes some odd remarks about how maybe he's actually other Hellfire Club member Harry Leland's son. And Sebastian doesn't take too kindly to this, but alas, there ain't all that heck of a lot he could do about it. Emma mentions that Leland died fighting Killrod or something. She, you know, almost certainly means Nimrod because he did die fighting Nimrod, which, uh, you know... That robo-bugger might loom large in these books eventually, so maybe we'll be seeing old Harry Leland pretty soon. Now, from the Citadel emerges Jumbo Carnation and the Saucier. It's basically confirmed here that we're planting seeds for that upcoming Hellfire Gala here. Now, Emma warns the fellas that there are going to be humans among the guest list, which really gets under the Saucier's um, skin a bit. Bishop wonders why Call Me Kate isn't here for the planning, to which Emma says she's off delivering a letter, and, uh, well, she totally is. So let's join her in Madripoor. 
She and Lockheed row up to the shantytown Lowtown, and upon arrival, they find some SWAT types set to attack an innocent family's hut. And she takes care of them with the quickness, scaring them off. Now, we soon learn that this innocent family is a special one. They're actually the Fisher folks who rescued and nursed Lockheed back to health during Kitty's time in Dead. Now, she learns from them that the banksters who took over the Madripoor government are looking to demolish Lowtown and build more fancy towers and whatnot in its stead. To which Kitty tells them to hold fast, because she might just have a plan, and she certainly does. Now, we jump back to Krakoa, and we are at the Crucible. Now, here, Callisto steps forward, and it looks like the host of the Crucible is now the Silver Samurai. You know, he is the host of that quarry fighting arena, so I suppose it does have some precedent. Now here, he asks Kalisto if she had brought her Kaisha Kunin, and she has not. The samurai then offers his blade, and also informs that the Fenris twins have offered to assist with the ritual as well. Kalisto suggests that if she winds up facing Fenris, she'll likely wind up in the hole for murder, rather than the hatchery for rebirthening. And, uh... She also calls them racists, which I don't think they'll argue. Just then, Storm arrives to give Callisto what she needs. And so they fight. For like a minute, before Storm gives Callisto a lightning fist-enabled heart attack. Callisto dies, and is brought back on the very same page. The next day, Storm watches as Callisto experiences the island for the first time as a powered mutant. It's worth noting, Callisto is still wearing an eye patch, so they didn't bother to give her both eyes back? Okay. Uh, she, Storm that is, narrates a bit about change and how much she longs for it, which I guess that's why she's leaving. Info page from the X-Desk and the nefarious, if the latest issue of Wolverine is to be believed, Dolores What's-Her-Face. Now, we learn that the Hellfire Trading Company is buying up a bunch of Madriporian real estate so they can, you know, fight back against this, uh, this government shutdown. We also learn that Ominous Verandi's governance over Madripoor seems to be something of public knowledge. Plus, old Dolores has in been invited to the Hellfire Gala. She reveals that the guest list is fairly eclectic, including heads of state, ambassadors, and metahuman associates of the X-Men. Metahuman? What is this, the DC Universe? Eh. Alright, well, we wrap up the issue with Kitty delivering an invitation to the gala to Ominous Verandy. Hmm, she even slips a Call Me Kate into the conversation, which... I mean, I know I joke about it here on the show, but it's been 17 issues. If we keep needing to be reminded, it's just not gonna stick. You know, this Kate thing, this Kate experiment, it's not gonna work. So let's just go back to calling her Kitty, Okay. Now, that's the end of the issue. Next episode, we're going to be dipping into King in Black with sword number two. So that's, uh, I guess that can go one of two ways, can't it? Um, either way, I'm looking forward to seeing a little bit of what the hubbub's about. But let's talk about the hubbub we got here. Well, I guess it's probably no surprise that my main takeaway to this has to do with the Crucible and the fact that uh, we are getting some answers here as to how it's going to uh, work from this point on. And uh, I suppose that this is... um, It's interesting how they're doing it, right? Uh, But it also opens up a uh, a whole lot of challenges here because... We can look at it a few different ways, right? The Storm gave Callisto a relatively merciful death, 
right? She didn't beat her to death. She didn't cut her to pieces. She didn't blow holes in her. She gave her a heart attack, which is probably as merciful as as you can do in the crucible, unless you could turn into like carbon monoxide and just fill up her lungs and just let her go to sleep. I think this is probably about as merciful as it's going to be. That said, Storm still murdered somebody. She still killed somebody. I mean, it's it's. I, I mean, uh, things that go way above the scope of a silly little X-Men podcast. I mean, we can talk about things like Right to Death, and we have talked about that a little bit during the uh, the X-Force deal with Domino and Colossus. We could talk about assisted suicide, stuff like that, because it's kind of what this is. It's a, It's a weird one. It's really a weird one here, and... I mean, we go into this from from the get-go, knowing that Kalisto is going to die here. So it's almost like, what's the point of the fight here? What would happen if she if she injured Storm and then Storm killed her? So then we'd have someone who was dying, but then someone who's injured on top of that. It just seems kind of weird. With Apocalypse, it was different because Apocalypse is Apocalypse. Here, we're just going to be taking random characters to and turn them into murder murderers here, right? And they've done this before with Storm, uh, back in Uncanny 325, when she ripped Marrow's heart right out of her chest. And then we found out that Marrow had two hearts, so we were able to get out of it. But it's kind of weird here that Storm... Last issue, we had Storm overseeing torture, and here Storm is killing somebody. Of course, you know, she asked for it, but (laughs) still... She killed somebody. She has to live with the fact that she actually ended a life, and that's just kind of weird to me. It makes me think about like all the uh, all the younger X Men and whom they might ask to do them this service as the Kaisha Queen, right? Are we going to have young X Men killing other young X Men in the name of you know mercy and rebirth? And I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know that I like it very much. Um, Apocalypse, it's it's different, because we can walk things back with Apocalypse, because he's Apocalypse. But, I mean, if we have a depowered young mutant going up to Jubilee and being like, Jubilee, I need you to kill me. <laughs> I, I just... And then she goes and does it. I don't know. It just seems weird to me. Not not really digging that. It is... Uh, it's a lot... There's a lot of meat on that bone to discuss. Um... Let's take a look at the resurrection cue Because uh, Kalisto comes back very quickly Like the next panel I don't remember if this is the standard For Crucible deaths We've only seen Arrow, you know, that Guthrie girl And she did come back very fast So I wonder, like Is it like an immediate thing? Like, are the bodies ready to hatch Just waiting for a member of X-Factor to give the thumbs up It's like, yep, she's dead let her, let her rip, you know, is that how they're doing this? And if that is the case, I can I can definitely go with that That's, you know, I, I would have no argument for that It's, you know, just something I'd like to know Also, we hear in this issue that Harry Leland of the Hellfire Club And maybe Shinobi Show's father uh, Is somewhere in the resurrection queue Just waiting for his number to come up That's kind of weird um, That he has to wait uh, where we had Siren she was hatched twice in five days, right? And we had, you know, we had Empath and Quentin Choir die almost every single issue that they're featured in. But I do recall there being something about dying, like in the line of duty or dying for Krakoa. You'll be, you know, expedited with your uh, resurrection here, as Quentin Choir and Empath would definitely fit that bill. Siren, however, 
I don't I don't know because Siren she was just flying and apparently if you, if we listen to her she was just drunk flying and uh, forgot how to fly and fell to her death. Of course it wasn't that, but that's what she's telling us. So why is she coming back so often when old Harry Leland, who sacrificed himself to fight Nimrod, who might just be the big bad of this entire run, he's still waiting. That's, I don't know, that just seems weird to me. Um, Let's go back to Storm for a minute. She's leaving Krakoa, apparently. Um, We're always the last ones to know. Uh, I don't know why she's leaving, other than the fact that she wants change. I don't know where she's going. All I can say is I hope it's not Wakanda. That's boring I guess I'm gonna have to pay more attention to the Marvel previews from this point on To see if Storm, you know, pops up somewhere else I think she's on the cover of an upcoming issue of X-Men though So I think we have a little bit of time before she's going to jam here So we'll have to take it as it comes, I suppose I do wonder what the plans are for her And, you know, um, as much as I hate to lose her Here to the X-Books here, um if I were to say that they've handled her very well since the uh, Hoxpox uh, docs launch here, I, I'd be lying because they haven't done a heck of a lot with her. Um, it, she's always been kind of just an afterthought here, um, getting a few you know little bits and pieces, but I think she certainly deserves better than what she's been getting so far. So maybe she'll get that outside the Xbox. I guess we'll we'll wait and see. Um, we learned a little bit about Sebastian Shaw's current state. He's not in a vegetative state. Uh, he's able to speak. He's able to argue. He's able to question. Seems like they lessened his uh, injury from the end of last issue here, where he was uh, he seemed totally incapable of much when uh, he was sat before the Quiet Council here. He seemed totally unable to uh, kind of express himself in that scene. But here, we're, we're getting a little bit more out of him. Um... One more thing about this issue, uh, Fenris, uh, they are, of course, Nazis, right? Um, it seems odd to point this out uh, the way they did it, when we consider how many absolutely awful people are currently living on and, and wielding great power on Krakoa. Uh, to me, it seems like they're trying kind of hard to make a statement. And I get it. I totally get it. Racists and Nazis are scumbags, right? I, I mean, I totally understand that. But, I mean, given the context of the makeup of Krakoa, I can't help but feel like we're being learned something here. Like, they are trying to make a statement. And, I mean, these are clownish characters, too. I mean, they're they're dumb, <laughs> these Fenris twins. They're even treated as jokes in the uh, in the scene in this issue here, and that's just about right. Uh, no, no matter how much affection I have for the whole upstart story here, I'm still not a fan of Fenris or Baron von whatever his or whatever their father's name is. It's just uh, interesting to me, and I don't know if this is being done intentionally, but uh, I mean they are uh, white supremacists. They're scumbag white supremacists, but they're living on an island that has a lot of mutant supremacists on it. People who view non-mutants as being inferior or lesser. So it's a uh, it's kind of dicey, kind of slippery. Um, I honestly don't feel comfortable talking more about it than I already am, but it just it felt a little weird, is what I'm trying to say. But uh, overall, this was a really good issue, a really packed issue here. Um, a lot of neat callbacks to recent goings-on here. Those dangling threads that uh, I didn't know if or when we'd ever see them again. You know, I didn't think we'd ever see the little Fisher family that rescued Lockheed. Um, I didn't think we'd need to. 
But here we are using that as a way to spur on another story uh, and another sort of offensive against Omenes Verendi. So that's pretty cool. Um, the Faroe Islands, I, I thought they forgot about that, to be honest here. But, but I suppose if we you know, take the COVID hiatus into account here, the whole Hellfire Gala thing was probably supposed to come together a lot quicker than it did, you know. Exitens was supposed to run, I believe, late summer, and uh, we didn't get it until the end of the year. So maybe the Hellfire Gala was already, maybe that was supposed to happen at the end of the year instead of the summer of uh, 2021. So maybe this was supposed to flow a little bit better. Maybe the Faroe Islands was going to be more fresh in our minds uh, when this was all coming to pass. So who knows? Who knows? A lot of things were out of everybody's control last year, so we got to give some allowances here. But overall, this was a really, really good issue, a gorgeous issue to look at. Matteo Lali is uh, really, really good, and it's definitely getting me uh, kind of psyched up for whatever this Hellfire Gala is uh, going to be. here. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode. But first, let's hop into our mailbag here. Now we're going to start with Damien talking about X-Men number 16. Now he says, I have read this issue a number of times and I never realized that we'd already met Idol. When I read the info pages, I thought we only knew Iska and Tarn. I love the idea of a precog being introduced to Krakoa, even if it's just subtly, and there's no doubt that we're meant to be reminded of Mystique's wife in those council scenes. Now what Damien's referring to is the... uh, Boy, what were they called? Um, the Great Ring of uh, Arako? The Arako has their own set of uh, leaders, kind of a quiet council of their own here. And just like Krakoa's, they're broken into like four little quadrants, and there's a translator in the island itself, just like Krakoa and Doug in, uh, on Krakoa. And uh, we met a few of these characters who are going to be seated in this Great Ring. And, of course, we have Iska the Unbeaten. She's taking Genesis's, Genesis's spot. Um, and we have Tarn the Uncaring, who we met in that issue of Hellions during Exitens that totally wiped out the Hellions, basically. And Idol was another character that we found out was going to be part of this great ring. And we haven't heard much about Idol other than they were a cribmate of the creepy summoner who uh, we met back in the long ago here. And that they have a sort of a prophetic powers, precog. Uh, and we talked a bit about how, you know, Krakoa is uh, really, really against having Destiny come back for, uh, well, for the fact that she's a precog. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how they uh, receive Idol when they uh, inevitably meet. So that's going to be very, very interesting. Now, Damien continues, I do come away from this issue wondering if the eventual replacement for Apocalypse on the Council will be Iska. She's dismissive of Xavier and Magneto, but she also seems happy to educate them. She's also retained her color change from when she switched allegiance during Exitens. Maybe she's a Krakoan in waiting. And that's a really good point, because I didn't even notice that she changed color. And, uh, yeah, she did. (laughs) I had to look back at that. I was like, wait a minute, how did I miss that? How did I not comment on that? So maybe... Maybe she will take the apocalyptic chair in the Quiet Council here... I don't know how long it'll take to get there, and I don't know if I'm totally interested in the story that might get us to that point, because I'm, I'm just so tired of all this stuff. But uh, I guess we'll wait and see. I guess we'll wait and see. Uh, Damien continues, The Hellfire Gala intrigues me. 
We're going to get the announcement of the X-Men team, but there are also going to be human guests, and we know that there are elements of a fashion show for Jumbo Carnation as well. They've just released images of variant covers, which feature some of Russell Dodderman's costume designs for the Hellfire Gala, and they are really out there. They're definitely not practical superhero costumes, so I find myself wondering exactly what's going to happen at the gala. And yeah, the uh, gala, I did a little bit of research on this, and I shared uh, these images at the 90s X-Men Facebook group, the uh, the, the Dodderman um, variant covers here, because, yeah, they are weird. These costumes are way out and wild, and it really makes me wonder exactly what this is going to be all about. And again, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the gala at the end of the episode. I'm definitely intrigued, though. Definitely intrigued. Uh, Damien continues... I feel like I should also take a little time to praise Phil Noto. This issue looks amazing. Now, here's some news to me. With the announcement that Cable is ending, I have to hope that we see more of Noto on X-Men. Oof. That's a... I woke up to this email, and I I saw that, and I'm like, I couldn't have read that, right? (laughs) Is Cable really ending? And yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that at the end of the episode as well. But yes, Cable is going away. And you're right, Noto is uh, is fantastic here. Uh, I do hope that he gets a... I hope he stays on the X family, because I, I definitely like seeing his work, and I don't want to lose him to, uh, to our uh, coverage here. I, I really, really like his stuff. Now, uh, Damien wraps up with, anyway, until it's revealed that Chris is one of the redacted members of the Great Ring, make mine X lapsed. And boy, could, could you imagine if they wrote someone like me into this thing? They, they would they would depict that character as such a jerk, just complaining about how things were better back in the day and <laughs> dismissing everything and just saying like, oh yeah, these, these are uh, these are these are great ring problems here. These aren't your problems. These are great ring problems. And he'll say, how's it going? Every time he uh, every time he walks on panel. So we'll we'll have to we'll have to wait and see. I. I <laughs> I hope that's the case. I hope that's the case. But thank you so much for uh, for for a sharing your thoughts on that issue and b for uh, facilitating another new segment to the program. Here we're going to talk a little bit about the news that uh, that we can all use that I was totally ignorant of uh, after we finish with the mailbag here. So thank you for that. Now let's hop into Evan's message here. He's got a couple of messages here, and it's some non X X things. If you recall, I'd asked um, I'd asked folks who are reading the wider Marvel universe to let me know of any relevant goings on to our you know Krakoan X books in other books, and Evan has helped us out with a couple here. He starts with Avengers number thirty-seven has an epilogue scene on the moon at Summerhouse, setting up the Phoenix storyline, and it does have the Phoenix. Given that it's the final part of a bat-crap-crazy Moon Knight-centric story, it might not be worth an episode, unless the X-Books do get dragged into the Phoenix event. But I figured I'd give you the heads up, and Wolverine may figure into the next storyline. And yeah, I did pick up Avengers number 40. Uh, Avengers number 40 is the first part of Enter the Phoenix, and I I thought, you know, it might be a fun thing to cover here on the show, and I thought maybe, maybe it would be relevant. Um... I don't know that it is, and uh, I tried reading this thing a couple of times, and I was so lost. I was absolutely lost here, and and I think we talked about this before, how the Phoenix, it feels like Marvel's trying to take the Phoenix away from the X-Family, right? It's like, no, no, this is a Marvel thing now. It's not an X-Men thing, it's a Marvel thing. And uh, I don't know that we'll see 
a whole heck of a lot uh, to set up anything in the X-Men from the Phoenix anytime soon. Though I could be completely wrong. I could be completely wrong, but I just don't see uh, a Phoenix coming around to threaten the X-Men anytime soon. I think I think uh, the Phoenix is a, an Avengers villain for now, and hey, I guess that's okay. Um, uh, Wolverine, I believe, is in that story here, but... Um, it's it's weird. Um, it's a book that I, I said that I, you know I always complain about like the double page spread and the roll call and that issue of Avengers could have used a uh, roll call because I wasn't sure who I was looking at. So uh, now Evan continues. Uh, Franklin, no more mutant Richards update. Now in Fantastic Four number twenty seven, which is the issue after we find out that he's not a mutant or never was a mutant. He says the only mention is that he says to his mom that he's not a mutant anymore, and she doesn't seem surprised. But his dad gives him an Iron Man suit with FF branding left over from Empire. So uh, basically, we, we, we're not missing anything there. So uh, <laughs> that makes me feel a little bit better about not pursuing the Franklin Richards story, because, yeah, as, uh, as awkwardly and as dismissively as they, well, dismissed it, uh, it looks like uh, we're just going to keep keep brushing it under the rug here. We're just not going to pay much mind to it. And that's, you know, that's their prerogative, I guess. So happy that we're not continuing along with uh, Fantastic Four, at least for now. You'll have to let me know if anything else happens. And uh, if that is the case, we will uh, we'll pop back in. But thank you so much for helping to keep me abreast of the goings-on in the wider Marvel Universe and also letting the listeners know if there's anything they wanted to see. If you want to read about the Phoenix and Avengers, you can do that. If you want to read about uh, Mr. Fantastic giving Franklin an Iron Man suit, you can do that too. So thank you so much, Evan. And uh, that will close out the mailbag for today. But it's time for that new segment. We're going to talk about news. And uh, this is... Relatively old news I'm not here to break news I feel like uh, folks on social media And content creators Who fancy themselves as newsbreakers Are uh, perhaps a little too pleased With themselves here I know I'm not breaking any news here I mean, how much news can you break When you're crediting other news sites? Eh, what are you going to do? Now, let's talk about cable being cancelled Now this comes from Bleeding Cools Marvel cuts the cord and cancels cable Says writer Jerry Duggan and artist Phil Noto's action-packed run on cable will reach its explosive climax this June. While the rest of the X-Men gear up for the the highly anticipated Hellfire Gala, young Nathan Summers will have to contend with his his grizzled war veteran future self in Cable No. 12. The past and future of Nathan Summers will finally collide in a game-changing confrontation that'll set this iconic character on a new path. Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um... I wonder I wonder which cable we're going to have at the end of this. Uh, will the kid cable experiment be over? Will we go back to old man cable? I I wonder this uh, I'm interested. I'm interested. Uh, back to the article here. We have a quote from Jerry Duggan. He says, "I was grateful to be reunited with Cable in this exciting new era of the X-Men, and even more excited to be reunited with one of my most important collaborators and friends." Phil Noto and I have wrenched on a lot of comics together, and this one will be immortal because of his sublime work. On your feet, soldiers, we have our most dangerous battle in the final chapter. Now, Bleeding Cool ends with, It's the end of an era and the beginning of a new age for Cable. Don't miss the final issue of this epic saga when Cable number 12 goes on sale June 30th. 
Well, we did take a look at the sales charts uh, a few episodes back here, so we can't say that this is a gigantic surprise, right? It's a disappointment because cable is uh, really, really good, but um, it's not a surprise. It's unfortunate that I think a lot of folks judge this one not even by the cover, because the covers have all been really, really cool, just by the name on the cover, cable, you know? I think a lot of people just figured this was going to be Another useless cable series Because we've gotten a lot of those We've gotten a lot of just Really bloaty, fillery cable series You know, where it's just like Hey, we gotta put another book out Let's throw Cable's name on it Here, it you know, kind of had a reason to exist And it did its own thing And it was funny And it was good And it was beautiful And it's, uh, it's too bad that it'll be ending here I'm just glad that it seems as though uh, Duggan knows the story he wanted to tell with this And will be getting the opportunity to do so So I guess we'll probably be hypersensitive To things like signs of truncation Like uh, I think a lot of us are When we hear that a book's being cancelled We look to see if we can find the seams And I'm sure where we want to find them we will But hopefully there is enough lead lead time for this For uh, Duggan to Wrap this up in a way that's satisfying for him and uh, for us as well. Uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be sorry to see Cable go. Now our next piece of news here is all about the Hellfire Gala, and as I mentioned, I already shared this over at the Facebook group. That's '90s X-Men, but I figure we probably should talk about it on the air too. Um, now it's going to be 12 issues in June. And uh, from our Bleeding Cool article, we have these highly anticipated stories will be told across 12 issues, offering different perspectives and viewpoints of a single night that will go down in Marvel Comics history. Throughout the event, fans can expect critical moments to occur that will shape the X-Men's future as we know it, including the unveiling of the first Krakoan X-Men team, the final member of which was decided by a mega-popular Marvel.com vote. Now, I already knew that this was going to be 12 parts here, and uh, I just posted the article to the group. I didn't really pay much mind to it. I assumed that we were going to get, we were going to be getting some, like, double shipping books here. Like, uh, maybe two issues of X-Men, two issues of Marauders, I don't know. That's not the case. Um, (laughs) That's not the case at all. Let's go through these issues. Um, We got Hellions number 12, Marauders 21, X-Force 20, Excalibur 21, X-Men 21, New Mutants 19, Planet Size X-Men number 1, X-Corp number 2, Sword number 6, Way of X number 3, Wolverine number 13, and X-Factor number 10. We canned Cable and we still have 11 books in this line. 11! I mean, Planet Size is hopefully just a one-shot, and hopefully it'll be the only overpriced book of this of these 12, but, uh, I mean, we started this line with six books, and I'm pretty sure we all thought that was too many. We've doubled it. And, I mean, this is June, so there will be a ca- an issue of Cable. The last issue of Cable will come out in June, so there's going to be... 12 books, and I'm, I'm sure Children of the Atom's going to come out, so we're up to 13 books. That's a lot of damn books, isn't it? Oh, boy. Um, now, we'll talk more about these issues during our uh, solicits chat, uh, which will probably be the first week in May, because these will be the June books, so we'll talk about that during the first week in May. But, uh, yeah, we got a lot of books to discuss. It's funny, when uh, I started this show and always pictured myself catching up, Um, I figured, okay, well, when we catch up, and if we're doing this daily at that point, 
well, then we can explore other things, right? We could just we could do the hox, pox, docs, rocks, socks, books one week of the month because there'll only be like five or six of them, right? Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean, even when we're caught up, uh, we're going to be devoting at least two weeks a month to these, uh, to these ongoing uh, current day books. That's pretty wild stuff here. But anyway, that will do it for our brief look at um, some very relatively old news. And if anyone out there comes across a news item that you think is relevant to the show or wants to hear my thoughts on, uh, please feel free to shoot me a message here. Shoot me an email and uh, we can discuss any upcoming news. So please feel free to uh, hit me up if you come across something that you feel uh, might be of interest. Uh, you could find me a few different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. And of course, those uh, communication channels aren't just for news. You can also, you know, send me your thoughts. Just say hi. Whatever you want to talk about, I'm here. Uh, you could find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, which also now includes Xlapsed Origins, which is a look at some seminal stories from the past that still inform the books to this day. Uh, we're starting with a look into Otherworld and Captain Britain, and we're just meeting Saturnine. It's a Really good time there. It's a series of articles. It's not audio. Maybe one day it will be. Um, this is uh, the 150th episode, and every time I hit like a big milestone like this, I always figure maybe I'll announce that I'll, I'm bringing the Patreon back, and I can put some exclusive you know, coverage and, uh, and discussions on that, but uh, I, I'm never ready for it. <laughs> I, don't know if, uh, I don't know if I ever will be, but uh, I guess uh, if you're interested, keep an eye and ear out for that. Maybe it'll come. Uh, eventually, if I ever get the gumption to go about doing it. But for now, X-Lapsed Origins is uh, text and pictures on the blog, chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Uh, you can chat us up on Facebook. You can share news on Facebook if you'd like. That's 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to all of the programming at the Chris and Reggie channel at chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available at all your noise aggregation places. And I think that will do it for today. Um, I want to take a moment to just thank you all so much for helping me get to 150 episodes. I can say with 100% certainty that I could not have done it without you. Um, this is uh, not always the easiest thing to do. It can be a very lonely endeavor. Um, I'm using whatever little free time I have here to uh, to devote to this. And it... Uh, it's, it could be lonely. So knowing that there are some folks out there that uh, seem to enjoy it and are on this ride with me really, really means a lot to me. More than I can even put into words without, uh, without becoming too gushy by, by far. But uh, thank you all so, so much for everything you've done for me over these past 150 episodes. And I only hope that I uh, have managed to return that favor. It really, really means the world to me. So thank you all so much. And, uh, you know, also thank you for uh, spending today with me. I really, really appreciate that as well. So I guess here's to uh, episode 200, huh? Well, well, we'll probably get there. We'll probably get there. But for now, let's worry about episode 151, which will be the next time we talk. So thank you all again. And until next time, I'll talk to you all real soon. See ya. Keep it.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 152 of x Lapsed, where, uh, well, we're dealing with a dead man walking today, aren't we? Uh, today, we're going to be kicking off the second half of, uh, I guess we can call it the Cable Maxi series, since it's wrapping up with issue 12. Today is issue 7, so uh, let's hop right in. Now, Cable, volume 4, number 7, had a March 2021 cover date. Stories called Gritty Days in the City of Brotherly Love, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Phil Noto. Letters, VCs Joe Sabino, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman, edits Biso White Sapolsky, cover price $3.99, went on sale January 20 of 2021. Now we open with a mostly blank text page, and this is a quote from Cable about how the past hasn't happened yet. Uh, such is the life of a time traveler, I suppose. Now, the story begins on Krakoa, where a motley assortment of characters are paying their respects to the fallen Gorgon. We can see uh, Grasscutter and the other sword, the Gra- Godkiller, maybe? I don't know. Whatever his swords were, they're, they're, they're for- in a formation of an X, and uh, folks are there to pay their respects. And, of course, you know, Gorgon, he died during X of Tens, and as a matter of fact, it was in the previous issue of this very series. Even though I'm pretty sure we've read somewhere that he was already back and acting strangely. Uh, X-Factor, was it? Well, they're, they're treating this as though he's still dead, so I'm guessing this is uh, when he was still dead. Um, even more curious is the assortment of characters here to pay their respects. We got Cypher, Bay the Blood Moon, Magic... Callisto with her eye patch on the wrong eye, a cuckoo, Quentin Choir, who I'm pretty sure is supposed to be dead, held captive in Russia, or both right now, and Mondo. Okay, uh, Cable leaves them to mourn because he's got stuff to do, and uh, I don't think it has anything to do with uh, having a great big red spider on his symbiotic chest. Uh, we'll just pretend that hasn't happened yet either. Okay, double page spread of roll call and cred. We're going to be focusing on Cable, Rachel Summers, Detective DiStefano, Detective Molina, Cyclops, and Jean Grey. Now we resume with little Nate chatting up his sister Rachel. And she wonders why he's been avoiding her of late, which he denies, but I mean, we're dealing with mind readers here, so uh, they know what they know. He asks her for help, now that the, quote, otherworld fiasco is out of the way. And I can only hope that that's a meta-reference from Jerry Duggan. I feel like uh, anytime anyone mentions the Festival of Swords in these books, it's with uh, derision or outright dismissal. And uh, I mostly agree with that sentiment. Anyway, Cable enlists Rachel to help him find those ten missing tots from back in the long ago. I mean, this story arc kicked off the volume of Cable, right? Which launched nearly a year ago. And I mean, heck, it's been four months since we covered it here on the show, so it's a long time ago. I was uh, episode 65, so ages ago. Um, now, anyway, now before we know it, Nate and Rach have gated to Philly to rendezvous with Detectives DiStefano and Molina. 
And uh, it goes to show what a difficult case this is turning out to be. I mean, by the time these babies are found, they'll probably be old enough to vote. Uh, Now, the techs aren't all that impressed by Rachel, claiming that they doubt that she'll just be able to magically solve the case. And so, well, uh, that's kind of exactly what she does. We get a really cool page of Rachel performing her hoodoo, after which she's able to deduce the location of five of the missing ten children. And it's those Order of X kooks, which we already knew. She directs a little search party a few hours north to a weird mansion in the woods. And so, lickety-split, that's where we be. Now, the detectives are pretty wary of the situation, and they worry that if this were to go sideways, they'd likely wind up with, uh, at the very least, an unpaid vacation. Unfortunately for them, Cable and Rachel aren't about to dilly-dally. Instead, they just rush on in. Now, Cable makes his presence known immediately by uh, smashing his way through the front door. Uh, The Monsignor of the Order of X dismisses him as a false mutant and instructs his followers to take him out. Believe it or not, they are unsuccessful in this task. Our hero then rushes up a flight of stairs where he finds himself in a bit of a standoff. You see, up there is the Monsignor and four of his followers, and each of them is holding one of those missing babies. And they also have knives held to the baby's throat, so there's that too. The Big Bad warns Cable not to make a move or else the babies are going to get it. He also warns that this is not a bluff, and Cable is certain that he's not lying. Now, after telepathically checking in with Big Sis, Cable shoots all five of the cultists in their shoulders. They drop to the ground, but the babies do not, because Rachel's got them. With the baby safely deposited into the detective's arms, Cable heads over to the big bed to try to get some information out of him. He reads his mind, which apparently is something he couldn't have already done at this point. What he finds is that the Order of X answers to... Oh, come on, it's a Cable book. Who do you think they answer to? Of course, it's Strife. Now, before he can get much more, the Monsignor bites down on some poison and offs himself. Rachel asks Nate what he found out, but he declines to share the information. She knows he's hiding something, but decides against pressing him. Now we shift to the summer house, where Rachel is recounting the events of the day with her parents. Scott and Jean are busily preparing dinner, just like, uh, I guess, all sitcom folks that that they've sort of kind of become. Uh, Now Cable excuses himself, claiming that he can't stay for dinner. After all, he's still got five more babies to track down. Rachel goes to follow him, informing him that she knows there's something he's keeping from her, but she's going to respect that for now. She does suggest that maybe he discuss whatever it is with Hope, though. Too bad she's currently on Mentalo's think tank, right? No, no, probably not. I mean, if that were the case, Kid Cable would already be a goopy symbiote, and so we should probably just not concern ourselves with any of that. Now, Rachel leaves Nate to his thoughts, and he punches a nearby wall. Cyclops pops his head in to warn that if it's come to the point where you're punching walls, it's probably a sign that you need a break. They chat for a bit, with Cyclops even hinting about adding Cable to his new Krakoan X-Men team, which gives Nate a great idea. But first, an info page. It's a letter from Sage to Beast about Nate asking for some data on Strife. Now, she's hesitant to hand it over, as it A, has to do with future events, and B has to do with Apocalypse. And I, I, gotta, I gotta wonder, are there any Krakoans around who don't know about Apocalypse's past? 
I mean, I get suppressing the more nefarious behaviors to kind of soften the blow of his being a power player in the Krakowan government. I mean, hell, we get a lot of that in our real-life government. But Apocalypse is, you know, more often than not, kind of a well-known Omega-level supervillain, so... I don't know. Uh, Now, it's also weird that Kid Cable's asking for this information here since he and his X-Force, from Volume 5 of that title, actually spent several issues fighting Strife. Now, I'm not sure if that's the same Strife or an alternate, but it would stand to reason that Kid Cable might have learned a thing or three about him during their confrontation, right? I mean, I just finished my X-Force Volume 5 buying spree. I finally rounded them all up, but I haven't read them, but I've looked at the covers, and Strife's on a bunch of them, so I gotta figure he, he at least shows up. Anyway, we wrap up at the Green Lagoon with Nate asking for some help from a friend. And after uh, probably about a page and a half of hinting around at who this is, uh, the big reveal is that he's chatting up Domino, who last we saw being attacked by a sea creature after it ate her foster dog, which we will be diving back into next episode when we take a look at the next issue of X-Force. But that's where we leave Cable. Let's let's talk about the, uh, the old dead man walking here. Um... Got to start with uh, just the unfortunate piece of business it is that uh, Exitens really threw a wrench into the flow of this series. I mean, this was a good issue. This was a good issue, but I mean, after it's been just so stop-start with all the uh, the sword stuff, the uh, the Exa sword stuff, it feels kind of weird that it was like literally on pause. You know, I mean, we've got these kids missing, and it's like nobody bothered to look for them because of the Festival of Swords. It's it's weird inside the book, it's kind of jarring outside the book, because, I mean, we left off this story a long time ago. But that's not something we're going to hold against the uh, creative team here. I don't think they have a whole lot of say in the big, you know, line-wide crossovers that uh, that permeate the... I was going to say the X-Books, but it's it's all comics. It's, uh, you know, I don't think uh, Duggan and Noto would be able to stop that even if they wanted to. So we're not going to hold that against them here. And instead, we'll just look at this as a uh, an issue of Cable. And as an issue of Cable, it was really good. I, I really enjoyed seeing him and Rachel together here without the folks, without the sitcom dad. And it just seemed like they, uh, they really gelled well. I really dug it. Um, Rachel here felt a little bit... She was being presented a little bit softer than she has been, I feel. Um... Here she's depicted as just a like a caring older sister who's uh, you know just trying to help out her little brother here, and I really liked it. I also liked her suggesting that Nate maybe chat up Hope, and I I gotta plead ignorance here. I don't know if uh, there's been any sort of uh, getting to know you scene between Kid Cable and Hope, because I mean they. They, they share a lot of history. Like Hope's entire history is tangled in Cable here, as we saw in the uh, Extermination uh, miniseries or the Extermination epilogue that we covered on X-Lapsination not too long ago. But I don't know if she's met Kit Cable or actually sat down and you know had a chat with him here. Uh, I don't know if that might have occurred in that X-Force Volume 5, but... I think it could be an interesting scene if it, you know, of course, if it hasn't already happened. Um, worth noting, if you were to look at the cover of this issue of Cable, it's quite evocative 
of um, early issues of, uh, I probably would have been Cable Volume 3, Volume 2 maybe, whichever one had him traipsing around time with Hope trying to evade Bishop, where you just have Cable holding his big gun and holding a baby. And here on the cover of this very issue, we have Kid Cable not carrying his sword, but carrying a big gun and a baby. So it really gave me uh, like a flashback to that old series there. And I don't know if that was intentional. Uh, I kind of hope it was, no pun intended. But uh, I think that could be a really cool angle. And uh, I look forward to seeing where uh, where this goes. If, if Cable is going to stop with Domino, like he recruited Domino to help him out. Or if he's going to recruit himself a, you know, a little team here. I mean, he's... I don't even want to say that he knows the Fallen Angels, but uh, I guess that is something that's out there. We'll have to wait and see, I suppose. Now, I suppose we could talk about the Domino scene as well. I mean, it wasn't a big surprise. It wasn't a big shock. It was pretty clear it was going to be Domino. What was a little bit weird to me was how um, furtively Domino was looking at Kid Cable in that last panel here, like... I don't know how old Kid Cable is, but uh, she was looking at him kind of flirtatiously. At least I thought so. I mean, it could just be me uh, reading into things that aren't there, but it it looked a little uh, <laughs> it looked a little strange. Um, what else? What else? Uh, Strife, Strife. Um, I am I'm a big Strife fan. I mean, that's that's right out of the wheelhouse of my uh, you know the the genesis of my comics collecting career was the whole. Who is Cable? Who is Strife? Why do they look the same? You know, and then going into the Executioner song, which one is the is really Baby Nathan? Because, I mean, we were told one, then we were told the other, and it was uh, it was an interesting time, and it's a time that uh, I remember quite fondly, and uh, it really showed me what comics can be. You know, they're not just, I mean, they are just stories, but at the same time, they're not just stories. They're things that you can think about and talk about and argue about and just wonder about and uh, have. All your expectations, you know, just uh, thrown up in the air And you just don't know which way it's going to go So, seeing Strife, I mean, this is a Chris thing It just tickled me a little bit What I don't get, and I mentioned this during the synopsis I don't know that Nate doesn't know anything about Strife Um, I don't know if, uh, is this the Nate who was raised by Red and Slim? I I mean, I, I don't know It's... Uh, that's just part of my lapsedness uh, seeping through, unfortunately. But I know that for several issues of that uh, previous volume of X Force, there was a lot of strife in there. So I would think Cable would know, Kid Cable would know a, a thing or two about the character. Um, what else? What else? Uh, the opening scene, uh, the Gorgon Memorial. Now, I'm glad they did it. Um, I don't think it would have been too terribly hard for an editorial note there to tell us exactly just when in the hell this story is taking place because, uh, I mean, it almost has to be before uh, sword number one, right? i got to figure they're probably going to cram this whole cable story in as fitting before sword number one unless, you know, something else happens. It just seems strange. I mean, sword number two would have come out a week before this issue and it ended with a cliffhanger of cable as a... Uh, I don't know if he's a symbiote or just has a symbiote shell. I don't know <laughs> all the ins and outs of King and Black, but you would almost figure if you're reading along that if you end on that cliffhanger and Cable comes out the next week, that you get a continuation of that story. But uh, nope, <laughs> not at all. 
not at all. Instead, we get a leftover from the pre uh, X of Tens uh, crossover event where uh, we're just trying to make things work as best we can, it seems. But, you know, I, I complain about editorial footnotes not being there all the time. This is just another case of that. I suppose I could also talk about Callisto uh, uh, having her eye patch on the wrong eye. I thought maybe I could, uh, you know, no prize it by saying maybe it's that guy Erg, you know, that other Morlock with the eye patch. But no, he's got the he's got a patch on the same eye as Callisto. Uh, also, Quentin Quire being there. I gotta assume that's a mistake, unless, I mean, we'll be reading X Force next episode. Maybe we'll find something else out. But I could have sworn he was. Either dead in Russia or dead in Russia. Now, overall, if we're able to kind of detach ourselves from all the odd uh, linear storytelling, you know, the continuity bits, um, this was a fine issue. I really enjoyed it. I liked seeing Cable and Rachel together. I like that we're picking up the the baby's subplot from forever ago. It's nice to get to feel like we're getting towards a little bit of closure on that. And knowing what little we know... About what's going to occur in the final issue of this book, issue 12 I'm really looking forward to seeing all these pieces fall into place And I hope you are as well But uh, that'll do it for the discussion of Cable number 7 Before we go, let's hop right into the mailbag And we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Factor number 6 He says, reading a new issue of X-Factor is joyous as you say, they're producing what is in many ways a very traditional X-book, but they're doing it in, a very, in very creative ways. Leo Williams and David Baldion are really playing with the comics page. Scenes like iBoy analyzing the body or the lie detector results play with the juxtaposition of images and words in ways that would only work in comics. And I love seeing that. And yes, absolutely. I think I mentioned the... Uh, I boy scene uh, as looking really really cool, but I didn't I didn't know if I was supposed to be uh, picking up any clues or hints uh, in the imagery. Uh, regardless if I was supposed to do that or not, it was still a very very nice looking page. And uh, you're you're right, it's uh, the way that uh, they're doing this is something that would only work in this medium. And we saw it in the um, previous issue with uh, with the cross section of the boneyard, which bled right into that page. Of the boneyard, where we saw people in different uh, different levels and different rooms doing their uh, doing their thing, it, it's really really good the way that they are uh, absolutely just playing with the uh, the language of comic storytelling. It's it's really really cool. Uh, Damien continues, giving every character their own moment in every issue is really adding texture to the book. So many X books have tended to foreground one or two characters at a time, but it's far more involving if everyone gets something to do. Everyone has a personality that's distinct from the others. You mentioned that even Amazing Baby gets a moment in the spotlight, but I was more surprised to see Kyle, a.k.a. Mr. Northstar, given some personality. And yeah, you're right. Uh, he uh, he points out that uh, Northstar sounds like a dad when he's talking to Prodigy about uh, his little cadaver farm. <laughs> and you're right. It's kind of crazy to me that, I mean, all these books get the same amount of pages, right? They uh, They only have so many pages to get their stuff in. And time in and time out with X-Factor here, we are seeing bits and pieces of every single one of our players. They all get a moment. They all get a personality beat. And it's uh, this is the way comics are supposed to be done. And it's really, really refreshing to see something this traditional occurring during current year. Uh, totally unexpected. 
totally uh, just a wonderful surprise. Absolutely. Uh, Damien continues, You rightfully single out David Baldion's faces for praise. They're very stylized and in some ways generic, but he expresses emotion so well. You always know what's going on. And I gotta say, I always comment that uh, Aurora is in various state of roll eyes every time we see her, because she is, right? She is always rolling her eyes in this book. But it's that that showed me how emotive David Baldion's art is. It was seeing the roll eyes time and again, and how each time we saw the roll eyes, it was a little bit different. You know, it wasn't just a dismissal like roll eyes usually are. It was like a pondering or a or like a flirty thing or just a, just being pensive in the roll eye. It's it's so weird, but I mean that's what that's what tipped me off to uh, Baldion's faces here because I mean he's got some cartoony characters to draw. He's got Eye Boy. You know how do you draw Eye Boy in a way that is emotive, and yet he does. And that's something I doubt I would have noticed if not for uh, being captivated by Aurora's roll eyes. <laughs> now Damien continues. The mystery around Siren's death was really well told. I love the fact that the X-Factor Investigations plotlines are not forgotten, and that Lorna's relationships from that era are key to her character. Just her reaction to Siren being drunk is given so much meaning. Lorna is shocked and concerned for her friend. And all this is achieved without having to present a potted history on a text page. And yeah, this was this was very, very well done here. Um, I had forgotten many of those plot lines myself. It's been so long since I've uh, since I've read them. It was one of my favorite books when it was coming out, but I guess it's kind of one of those out of sight, out of mind things. And uh, the X-Men have just been all up and down ever since. Uh, I don't know where any of our... I mean, where's where's Layla Miller? Is she still a, a thing? Is she still around? I know that Jamie has died at least once between then and now. It, Guido was king of hell for a minute. It's weird stuff. Weird stuff. And I've forgotten most of it. But it is nice to see that here. And it is a, you know, it's a surefire sign that our writers are... Actually, you know, doing their due diligence They're reading and they're building on the past here And they're using the past to contextualize the present And it makes everything feel that much more important Add to the fact that this uh, wasn't just text page after text page uh, Yeah, very, very well done Damien continues I completely get your point about the idealistic young policewoman versus the grizzled bigot It is a cliché, and there can be some value in challenging that or subverting such clichés On the other hand, the current biggest non-COVID news story in the UK is about male police officers attacking and murdering women when they're off-duty So a bigoted middle-aged policeman seems very on point from my perspective Wow, that is certainly news to me, I did not know that at all you all know me, I'm not a terribly worldly fellow I don't follow much of current events But yeah, that's that's pretty wild, isn't it? Uh, now Damien wraps up with Anyway, until I stop sniggering childishly At the concept of a bush bagel <laughs> Make mine X lapsed And it's funny, I didn't notice any humor in bush bagel Until just this minute So <laughs> thank you for that, Damien And also thank you for writing in to discuss that issue uh, next, Evan's going to talk about X-Force number 15 He says, are you sure X-Force got their book back? <laughs> Which is a reference to uh, me 
perhaps being a little Pollyanna-ish in suggesting that uh, after X of Tens was over, that uh, Wolverine might give X-Force back their book, since he took it over for a few issues for the uh, for the Festival of Swords. Uh, now, Evan continues, So the Russians were such a threat that we made Colossus look like a bad guy because he's Russian, and so is his brother. Why only bring him in and not Magic? Part of it's because they could, because Colossus didn't fight. Magic would have taken X-Force down, with the possible exception of Wolverine, and done a ton of collateral damage. Are we supposed to believe that she didn't know about this? The Festival of Swords handbook reminded me that they'd been on the outs, but I don't think she would have been okay with this. Maybe it had something to do with that mysterious mission from number one, that, but that was barely even hinted at. I think you're right there. I think this has a lot to do with that, uh, with that mission that we know so little about. All we know is that there was suffering, right? That's all we've been told, and I mean, we're up to issue... I mean, we're about to cover issue 16 of X-Force next episode, and that was before issue 1. And we still really don't have any kind of answer on that. Uh, it is very, very strange. I think that's definitely part of why they're a little suspect of him, other than just the Russian profiling, of course. Uh, as for not bringing magic in, you hit the nail on the head. I'm sure that uh, that she would have taken most of them down. And also, I just feel like they probably just didn't want to cross that bridge narratively. They didn't want to bring magic into this, because magic's got other stuff to do. I mean, it's hard to take it seriously if they exclude her, but I can see why they would do it. Now, Evan continues, As for Beast's killing of Omega Red, I think it's just the devaluing of life that you mentioned in the Age of Resurrection. I mean, in New Mutants number 14, No More Religion Wolvesbane sounds cool with accidentally killing young mutants in training sessions so they could fully explore their powers. I don't think that Beast could have convinced Professor X that Omega Red accidentally had an explosive cardiac arrest, so Chuck had to know that Arcady kicked the bucket. Now, you see, the more we talk about the devaluing of life here, is it's like every time we talk about it, it's just another reminder that our characters are okay killing one another. And uh, this has been coming up a lot lately. Uh, either that or it's just been like happening a lot more lately, where our characters are just willingly killing one another. Uh, that scene in New Mutants you referenced there, it's... Uh, I don't remember which of the trainees it was that asked uh, asked uh, Rain about uh, you know pushing themselves to the limit and how that might kill them and they and they were told that that's old fashioned thinking because you know that's not those aren't the rules anymore so if you try a tandem offense with a partner and it winds up killing you eh, no big deal you'll just come back so I mean yeah that's that's very very troubling I mean we had Storm. Uh, do Callisto the favor in the Crucible uh, not too long ago. It's it's strange, and, and we keep getting these reminders of how different these characters are right now. And I suppose it's easy just to look past it and just realize that okay, there is no death anymore. But when you stop and think about it, and you actually witness these scenes, and I mean, we didn't witness Beast yanking Omega Red's heart out, but we did see him with a smoldering hole in his chest. It's just a reminder of what they actually went through, what they actually did to another person, and it's it's one of those things I think we're gonna have trouble walking back. Uh, this is one of those where I don't know that we could put this genie back in the bottle outside of a tremendous. A reboot retcon sort of a situation here And uh, 
You all know my feelings on those. I don't want one of those, but at this point, it uh, it's, doesn't look like we'll be able to walk a lot of this stuff back. Now, Evan continues, I will say I like the characterization of Colossus and his Savage Land girlfriend. That's true. That's true. They have a, they have a neat little relationship. Um, she's very protective of him, and uh, he seems to appreciate that. I, I do like that we're finally off the uh, Kitty and Peter you know, merry-go-round, at least for now. I mean, that's refreshing, that's different Because uh, ever since uh, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer guy came in That's that's just been all Kitty and Peter since then So, Except when she went off to the other Peter, I guess I don't know Now Evan continues I went off on a tangent and didn't finish my thoughts about the Russians They were a big threat and then, boom We're on to vampires and not so worried about the Russians anymore Yeah <laughs> We're worried about the vampire nation now very uh, all over the place And it? it's kind of scattershot Because I'm sure we're not done with the Russians uh, I'm sure we'll be back with them before long here Maybe uh, Andy or Adam Whichever Cubert brother is doing the uh, the Russian story Maybe he's too busy And it's like, ah, oh, let's shift gears We'll bring Bogdanovic back in And we'll do the vampires for a few months Then we'll bring the Russians back later Who knows? Now, Evan wraps up with, I may use my weight on the Marvel Unlimited sliding timescale to power rank the Dawn of X series. X-Force probably won't be high. <laughs> and I hope you do. I hope you do power rank the, uh, the Dawn of X series. Uh, I will do the same as well. Um, and yeah, X-Force is probably going to be probably in the middle, I'd say. Because, I mean, we do have... Of course, Fallen Angels And, uh, I mean, Excalibur's been a chore a lot of the time So, it'll at least be better than those two But thank you so, so much for writing in, Evan And uh, we're going to wrap up with a piece of breaking mail here I just got this one hitting the uh, the old DM box here It's from our friend Jesse And he's got some recommendations for some non-X-X stuff For us to cover here on the show He says, Happy Hump Day. You've asked about some other books to possibly look at for the show, so here are a few. A book to maybe put on your radar are the Marvel Voices one-shots. Each have at least one X-Men Hoxpox-era story in them. Marvel Voices, the first one, has a Forge story that supposedly has the kids that go on to become the Children of the Atoms cast. So maybe that one will work best before taking on Children of the Atom number one. Marvel Voices Indigenous Voices has a Moonstar and Wolfsbane story. I remember other X-related stories in this, but this is the only one from the Krakoa era. And Marvel Voices Legacy has a Storm short story and a Domino story that doesn't give a specified timeline. So that's all great. That's all good stuff here. I saw those Voices books, but I assumed that they were... um, more of the evergreen sort of variety It was just going to be stories that could be timeless For a, uh, I guess there would be a Voices collection I was, I was assuming I didn't realize that they'd be contemporary At least, you know, with our current Krakoan uh, landscape So I will definitely be grabbing those And we'll be discussing them here on the show I'll see how they... Uh, if they're long, then we'll just do one at a time. If they're short, we'll probably just do one, you know, great big uh, voices episode, just covering all of the uh, X Men Hoxpox era anthologies. So I think that'll be a that'll be a good time. It's uh, those are stories I probably wouldn't have grabbed. So thank you so much for that recommendation, and uh, I'm going to be heading out to the shop probably in the next couple of days. So I'll keep my eyes peeled for them. I know I saw one of them. 
in uh, recent Marvel previews, so maybe they're not all out yet. But I will. Uh, I'll do my best to grab whatever is out there, and we will. Definitely get them slotted on the schedule So thank you so, so much, Jesse And anybody else who has any recommendations For some non-XX stuff Stuff that's relevant to the show Relevant to Krakoa, relevant to the current status quo Please, please let me know And if you'd like to uh, just reach out And talk about the books, talk about the show Talk about whatever you want You could reach me as well You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics Or you could shoot me an email over to WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfinitearths.com, also the home of X-Lapsed Origins, where we take a look at some seminal story beats that are still relevant to this very day and help give us a little bit of context we might need uh, for some of these uh, more nebulous concepts like Otherworld, for example, which is where we're starting. We've got an extended look at the early Captain Britain stories, which introduce a lot of the bits and bobs that we just read through with uh, Exitens, uh, Saturnine, Mad Jim Jaspers, The Furies, all that good stuff. We're covering it on the blog in a series of articles. Maybe one day it'll be an audio thing, uh, but maybe not. I don't know yet, but uh, it's there for you if you want it. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. I believe we have six or seven articles up to this point. Uh, you can also go to xlabs.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for all the show stuff. You can chat us up on Facebook, where we've just gotten an influx of uh, several new members. We're 90s X-Men on Facebook, and I just realized I can send invites, which I didn't realize was a thing I could do. So if you know me and you're not a part of the group, I might send you an invite. I mean, you don't have to join. We'll still be friends, but uh, I just didn't know it was an option for me. So that's a thing. Uh, also, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications And, uh, well, since you're listening to this, you probably already know that But feel free to spread the word I, I would uh, appreciate any help in that department Because I am not good at that But that's where we'll leave it for today I want to thank you all so, so much for listening It really means a lot to me And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon See ya!
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 154 of X-Lapse, where uh, this is the fourth or fifth time I'm trying to start this episode because uh, I was stricken with hiccups. Uh, I was fine all day until I sat down here, hit record, and uh, started hiccuping a whole heck of a lot. So I had to step away, and I think... I hope that I will be doing a, a little bit better from this point on and I won't have to take multiple breaks in the process of putting this episode together. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about New Mutants Volume 4, Number 15, which had a March 2021 cover date. Stories called The Kids Ain't Alright, written by Vita or Vida Ayala. I'll never know how to pronounce that name. If anybody knows, please, please let me know. Art by Rod Reese, led as VC's Travis Lanham. Uh, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits B. So White Sapolsky. Cover price $4. This one went on sale January 27th of 2021. Now we open at the, uh, we're in the Academos Habitat, uh, more specifically the fort. Now I don't have my Academos map handy, so I gotta assume that we've seen reference to this place before, but I don't think we've actually visited just yet. Anyway, uh, this place kind of looks like uh, like Endor, like where the Ewoks hang out. It's like weird raised huts and stuff. Uh, but that doesn't really matter. What matters is the place is in absolute shambles, like smoldering and stuff here. Now, if we recall from last issue, the New Mutants wrote a missive to Professor Xavier about the young mutants and their idle hands, leading to things like vandalism and whatnot, and uh, this is further evidence of that. Now, Magic is here to ream out the remaining good kids, you know, the ones who were victimized by the bullies, because uh, they're not all that keen on pointing fingers to who done it. They figure that that'll only intensify uh, subsequent bullying. We see Fauna, the coffee pooper, and Curse, who I barely remember. Um, now, there are some other kids, too. Uh, one of them looks like a knockoff of Quentin Choir. Uh, anyway, these kids are questioned by Ilyana. And Fauna sort of kind of starts awkwardly spilling the beans, to which Magic cracks her knuckles and tells the Tots that she'll take care of it and uh, she'll probably have a lot of fun doing so. Double page spread of Roll Call and Cred. Our featured mutants today are Danny Moonstar, Karma, Warlock, Magic, Wolfsbane, Warpath, Anole, Scout, Rainboy, Cosmar, No Girl, and the Shadow King. Now, we shift scenes over to a training session for the Shadow King students who were revealed at the end of last issue. Of course, that's Anole, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl. Now, they're outside, right? So it seems as though uh, old Farouk's presence might not be such a secret. And we're going to talk more about that throughout the episode, including in just a few seconds. Anyway, the purpose of these training sessions is to get Cosmar ready to head into the Crucible. Hmm, the Crucible, huh? Well, you see, as I read this for the first time, I assumed that they surely meant to say the Quarry, because I don't think the Crucible does anything for still-powered mutants. Huh, more on that in a little bit as well. Now, Cosmar asks if the Shadow King will watch her fight, and he says he will. So I guess he's not in hiding then, is he? Our next stop is the Boneyard, where Dakin, Dakin, and Aurora with the Roll-Eyes are having themselves a flirt. Unfortunately for Dakin, Dakin, uh, his sorta kinda kid sister, niece, or whatever the hell she is, Scout, pops up right between them. Now, this is not how Dakin, Dakin, saw his alone time with Aurora going. 
and so he walks Scout out. He promises that they'll play later on, quote, claws out, whatever that means. Scout understands, but she's clearly upset that she's being shown the door here. Let's shift gears and check out some Wild Hunt training time. We got Warpath still in his goofy gym teacher togs. He's once again playing up the importance of using powers in tandem. Now, when he stops to take a breath, Scout volunteers to help out. To which, James tells her to settle down, kinda dismissing her. Scout reminds him that she was created as part of an assassin group. To which, James tells her that she was just being used by humans and uh, she'll need to become better. Which is a kind of a dick thing to say. It's not like it was her choice to be, you know, a, you know, a spiky clone, right? Anyway, let's do some tandeming. We got Rain Boy and Shark Girl. They're, they synergize to create a Karsharodon hmm, Cyclone. I'm guessing that has something to do with sharks. It basically is a Sharknado. Um, Tempest and Armor synergize to create some Fire Armor, which is... Uh, not all that creative. Uh, Cosmar and Analay synergized to create... Uh, wait for it. And that's not me asking you to wait for it. That's just what their tandem move is called. It's the wait for it. Scout and Sprite synergized for a fastball special. But in the wrong direction. Like, away from the fight. Like, Sprite throws Scout away from the danger. So are the kids trying to keep Scout from getting hurt and or killed here? Or perhaps am I reading a little too much into this? Maybe seeing things I want to see? I don't know. Scout then chats up these four new young mutants who she claims to recognize from their time during the Age of X-Men. They claim not to know her from a hole in the wall and they dismiss her as being kind of annoying and try-hard. So, poor Scout. Next up, an info page. And it's a reply to a letter from Elixir to Rain who had apparently asked off-panel to have her son Tyr resurrected. Now, if uh, what I just said is kind of shocking to you, and you maybe didn't know that Rain has a child or had a child, uh, well, she gave birth to Tyr back during her time with X-Factor Investigations. This is, of course, the Peter David run. Now, he died during the whole weird strong guy is king of hell storyline, and the five claimed that they cannot verify that Tyr is actually dead. And so, the kid isn't even in the resurrection queue at the moment. So, bad news for Rain, and we're going to actually check in with her right now, back at the sextant. There, Rain confides in Danny just how upset she is that the Five won't resurrect her son. From here, we get a really great splash page that explains everything that happened with Rain, uh, Himrari, the Asgardian wolf god who Rain mated with, and their child, Tyr. At the end of it, Tyr is impaled by Guido's trident. Karma enters and reminds them that there's a party for Doug and Bay's reception that evening at the Green Lagoon. Danny offers to Rain that she could uh, skip it, you know, spend time with her, but Rain's insistent that they all go to be there to celebrate for Doug. Danny and Karma head out. Rain says she'll be there in a bit. And when she's all alone, the art turns a bleak off-white. It's very, very well done here. All the color just kind of drips off the panel here, except for rain is, is still fully colored. Next up, another info page, and it's from the Journal of Amal Farouk. And it's more setup of Amal's origin story. It seems he was possessed by the entity that would be known as the Shadow King. We know that. 
but it is a nice reminder that they are two distinct entities. And that's going to uh, be something I'm going to run with during our discussion in just a little bit here, because uh, the fact that we're getting a reminder of that here, I don't know that it's an accident. Um, But we'll get there. We'll get there. Right now, though, the story shifts over to the Green Lagoon. And before we get into the story, I gotta say that the Shadow King, or Amal Farouk, is here. Like, he's literally standing less than a yard away from Cyclops and Havoc. So I guess we gotta assume that he is a known commodity on the island? Which I suppose means I can quit complaining about him debuting in this era, in that cluster scene during the Empire cash-in, because maybe he's just there. Um, also, it would appear that Peeper from the Sword Book is having a drink here. Uh, we got Bay carrying Doug in as though he's a baby, which is uh, funnier than it has any right to be. We see that Cannonball and Sunspot have popped in to celebrate the good news. And thankfully, it would appear as though Sam left his wife at home. And they have some fun with Doug. They, they kind of razz him a bit. Now, off to the side, Scout tries to track down Dakin, Dakin but uh, he's way too busy with Aurora to even notice her. Danny notices Rain sitting by herself at the bar and decides to give her some company. They don't get too far into their conversation, however, as they're interrupted by a very meek and nervous Cosmar. Now, here's that other shoe about to drop. Cosmar, all sheepishly, asks Danny if she would be her partner in The Crucible. Hmm... Upon hearing this, Anole celebrates that Cosmar was brave enough to go through with it, to go through with asking Danny for this favor. Danny, however, flatly refuses, explaining that the Crucible is for depowered mutants only, and Cosmar, well, she ain't depowered, is she? What Cosmar is, however, is horribly disfigured, and she's hoping to use a resurrection as a form of, like, maybe plastic surgery to return to what she used to look like before her powers manifested. Danny tells her that uh, it's not the way it works. And also, she gives her some spoo about not falling into human ideals of beauty traps, stuff like that. Cosmar stomps off in a huff. Now we wrap up the issue with a big dance scene and the Shadow King toasting to young love, youth, and a great future. And that's where we leave it. Next episode, um, it's Excalibur Day. So, uh, yeah, we'll get there. But uh, let's talk about this wonderful little issue of uh, New Mutants. Because, boy, it does give us a lot to talk about. Um, The Shadow King. Let's start with the Shadow King here. We're going to start with the Shadow King, and we're going to revisit him a little bit later on here. Um... The Shadow King entity, he, he's listed as Shadow King in the uh, roll call page. But that doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. Uh, we kind of are fast and loose with what we name people in that. Uh, half the time, Jean is Jean Grey. The other half, she's Marvel Girl. I mean, we see sometimes Emma is the White Queen. Sometimes she's Emma Frost. Sometimes Sebastian Shaw is the Black King. Sometimes he's Sebastian Shaw. So uh, these might be just be mutant names, right? Instead of calling him Amal Farouk, they call him Shadow King. So is the Shadow King really here? Or is it just Farouk being weird and creepy? And are we, what I'm going to get to is, are we being misdirected? And we're going to talk a little bit more about that as we go here. I just wanted to drop that in here before we even get into the meat of this uh, discussion. Let's move over to Scout. 
it really feels, and I, I hope I'm not, I, I mean, I hope I am right and I hope I'm not right, but uh, it feels like she's headed for the shredder, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I feel like we're spending a whole heck of a lot of time in her shoes right now, which doesn't make me all that confident that she's long for this world. Uh, I think they're, they're kind of setting us up here. Um, we're kind of getting the feels for her. They're really establishing her as a likable character, and... Um, I don't know, it just feels like uh, the opposite of it's always darkest before the dawn. It's always brightest before the night or whatever. It's It feels like something's going down. And also, I kind of alluded to this during the synopsis here, but is it just me or did it seem as though the Wild Hunt trainees were purposely making it so Gabby wasn't in any real grave danger? I mean, we saw some impressive, if not a little contrived, tandem power synergies... But for Gabby's, it was a fastball special away from the fray. Are the kids and students and trainers, are they aware that her potential resurrection might be a bit dicey? And that the Quiet Council might just decide to nix it altogether? Maybe I'm just reading into it. Maybe I'm looking for patterns that I want to see. Or maybe maybe the art was a little unclear during the training session. Not sure which. Let's shift over to the Crucible here, another huge takeaway from this issue. Now here, here's a roundabout way to examine something that we've talked about a lot on the show. Uh, you know, resurrections that quote-unquote fix the resurrectees in some way. And we've talked in the mailbag about, like, Chamber. You know, we've mentioned his face and chest being destroyed. Forge having cybernetic parts. Karma having a robot leg, Right. And here, in this issue, we've got Cosmars, everything, I guess. Um, Now, I like the idea of mutants viewing resurrection as a way of transforming themselves into their, I guess, idealized self. I mean, first of all, these are kids, right? And with Cosmar in particular, she was horribly disfigured when her powers manifested. So it stands to reason that she'd be interested in a redo, even if that means that she has to kill her current body. Especially with how devalued life has been overall during this era, which is another thing we've talked a lot about. So maybe, I I mean, this might actually be received as something of a commentary on that phenomenon, just how quickly these characters are to, uh, to decide, oh, I can die, you know? And I mean, we see people die, let's just take X Force, right? We see people die there on the regular, and it being dismissed as A, a minor inconvenience, like in the case of Cecilia Reyes, getting, you know, impaled by the Russian nesting doll, whatever, or B, a flat-out joke, Quentin Quire. He dies, they kind of all laugh and say, ah, he's dead again, you know, it's it's turned into the, uh, the South Park meme there. So, in light of that, why wouldn't the young mutants of Krakoa feel the exact same way, that life doesn't have value? Death isn't an end. Instead, it's an opportunity at a new beginning. Maybe this is a commentary on that, and yeah, I like that idea quite a lot. Something I didn't care for so much about this scene was Danny's response. Uh, I mean, she's not too removed from being a child herself. And here she is giving platitudes, like, don't fall into the trap of human ideals of beauty. I mean, come on. I mean, that's such a brush-off, and totally not what Cosmar needed to hear in that moment here. She was scared, she was nervous, she was hopeful. 
And, uh, you know, Danny Danny responded with, uh, you know, a fortune cookie response. And, yeah, she didn't want to hear that. Now, let's look at Cosmar's decision to use the crucible in order to accomplish this. Now, that's... Well, I, I suppose with regard to the Krakoan status quo, it could be argued that that would have been a noble death. Now, if we go back to the genesis of the Crucible, back in X-Men number 7, it was mentioned as being a way to stop all the depowered mutants from all at once deciding to commit suicide so they could be reborn with their powers. So, rather than commit suicide, Cosmar decided to try and go about this the right way. At the urging of her friends and Amal Farouk. Okay, let's talk about him again here. Now, whether or not the Shadow King's actually here, I'm not sure, because I actually did a little bit of research since I'm definitely not fluent in Farouk. Um, Now, it seems that Amal himself is a mutant, but the Shadow King entity is more of like a multiversal manifestation. Now, if we dig into the all-new official Marvel handbook, number 9, September 2006, cover date, it suggests that Farouk had merged with the Shadow King, who has been able to bounce from host to host. And we get a little bit more of a refresher on that in the info page in this very issue. So, might we posit that the Shadow Kingness of the situation might be a little bit of a misdirection? Perhaps Farouk is just Farouk right now. I mean, he's a telepath, so that doesn't rule out that he's acting nefariously or influencing those around him. Or, maybe we're just supposed to think he's up to no good because he does look like a bad guy, and we'll ultimately find out that he's not a bad guy. I I mean, that's kind of a far-out theory, but, you know, stranger things have happened, especially in this era. At this point, I wouldn't be surprised to see that he'd eventually, you know, wind up taking Apocalypse's seat at the Quiet Council. I mean, stranger things have definitely happened. Now let's shift gears and talk a bit about Rain and her situation. Her son, Tyr, has been off the table since 2013. And I don't know that he's even been referred to all that much in the interim, though, of course, I was away from the Xbox for part of that. Now, this seems like an interesting path to take with Rain, which inspires a few questions. I'm not sure why Tyr's death is in question when members of the earlier incarnation of X-Factor Investigations actually witnessed it happening. I mean, Guido is currently living on Krakoa right now, and he's the guy who ran him through with the Trident. Why can't we just ask him? Like, hey, did you kill Tyr when you were under Mephisto's influence? And yeah, yeah, okay, cool, let's get that egg cooking, right? Now, this certainly wasn't just dropped in the book here for no reason. I'm sure it's going to be addressed here, and part of me is concerned, if not a little worried, that since this is a New Mutants book, and since there are so few seminal New Mutants stories out there to kind of uh, exploit and revisit, that this might be leading to a let's-go-find-and-rescue-tear-from-Asgard story. Which I really, really don't want to see. Um, that said, it would make total sense for it to go that way. It just, if it does go that way, it's just not something I'm all that much looking forward to, I guess. One last story takeaway, uh, Doug and Bay's reception. It was pretty neat to see it. Got some fun cameos, and it was cool seeing Sam and Roberto again. I wonder if they'll be sticking around. I couldn't say. That'd be interesting to see. Now, art, as usual, was fantastic. 
Though, as previously mentioned, I will admit again that I had a little trouble following the Wild Hunt scene with Scout in particular. I don't know if she was being thrown away from the fray or if I just totally misunderstood the scene. That's possible. You never know. Overall, another really, really good issue of New Mutants was so much interesting stuff to think about, talk about, discuss, and analyze. And uh, the book, I mean, it's really finding its way here. Uh, I'm really, really pleased with it, and I'm definitely looking forward to more. But uh, that is our discussion for uh, this issue of New Mutants here. We're just going to hop into the mailbag before we cut on out. It's a short mailbag, just uh, one message today. And it's from our friend Evan talking about Juggernaut number 5. Now he says, You're right, this did feel a little rushed. But I thought it was fun, and while I'm not clamoring for the further adventures of Quicksand, Primus got a few good quips in. It would be interesting to see who Nisiesa would add to this roster if he was given the chance. Most likely, if we see this group again, it'll be after they've been trounced off-panel by some larger menace. Yeah, it's true. I I don't see this as being an A, B, or even C list team here. (laughs) This is a... This is the team that you would put a debuting big bad against so he could just, like you put it, trounce this, uh, this group of geeks here. This is, you know, when, uh, when Doomsday showed up, they had him beat up Darkseid, you know? It's, you, always, uh, you always have to legitimize your new bad guys here, and I think this weirdo team is probably uh, is good fodder for that. And talking about how rushed this felt... Um, it's weird, uh, you know, over the past little while here, Marvel shifted its its uh, miniseries from being six issues long to five issues long, which is a good thing and a bad thing. Uh, it's good in that, I mean, decompression is a little bit less. It's bad in that so many of the creators are still writing the first four chapters as heavily decompressed and then are rushing to fill... To get to a conflict and a climax in the fifth and final issue, that's kind of bad. Um, also, we're making the uh, the trade paperbacks a little bit thinner, so I think uh, trade waiters are getting a little bit less for their money, which I'm not a trade waiter, and I, I, I guess I don't have too much sympathy for people who don't buy the single issues, but at the same time here, I don't want to see the uh, the fandom shrink any more than it has, so... I want to see people getting their uh, their money's worth here. So if we were paying $15 or $20 for a six-issue mini uh, tr- collected in trade, and now we're paying the same amount for a five-issue mini collected in trade, I could see some fans, those who would notice anyway, uh, being kind of annoyed by that. Now, Evan continues. I agree the most likely explanation for Kane's exile from Krakoa seems to be editorial inconsistency. It would be interesting for an in-story elaboration on this. Maybe it's as simple as Kane being unwilling to cause a problem. We saw what happened with Dead- when Deadpool wasn't allowed, so they had to compromise with him to avoid further problems. And it's probably a whole lot easier to let Kyle live on Krakoa than deal with Northstar's reaction to banning him. Not saying either of those approaches is wrong, but it may be easier to draw a hard line if Juggernaut, somewhat ironically, isn't going to rock the boat. All great points there, and I, I definitely agree that... Uh, Editorial inconsistency, like I like I mentioned during the discussion of the issue, is probably the culprit here. And if you haven't listened to the uh, Juggernaut Number no. Five uh, episode, what I had suggested was perhaps uh, Fabian Nicieso wasn't told that uh, there are non-mutants living on Krakoa. I mean, it's the same editorial team, but maybe they just didn't pass along that information here because the answers that Kane was getting 
were very much uh, like boilerplate answers. Like, he talked to Black Tom, who he's been, you know, associated with for decades at this point. And uh, Juggernaut mentions, hey, I wish I was going to Krakoa. And Tom just says, no, mutants only. Despite the fact that there are non-mutants living there. It just seems like maybe maybe Fabian didn't get the memo that uh, that Krakoa does house a few non-mutants. And I mean, this is something that is so easily rectified here. Just having having a little scene of Xavier being like, no, he'll never live on my island because, you know, that they have a history, of course. They're stepbrothers. They, uh, they have a rocky, rocky history here. It's easy to fix that. It's easy to just mention that in passing, and it would answer all of our questions, you know. Uh, Evan continues, and we're shifting focus to actually something we talked about quite a bit today. He says, In the same way, as much as I liked Scout raising the clone issue, I think she would be far more likely to be resurrected because she's important to Wolverine. Whereas the only person who wanted Madeline Pryor back was Havoc, and he is, for reasons yet unknown, still in the doghouse. He also has a weird, uh, what he calls a weird and probably wrong Havoc theory, which goes something like this. What if the reason he has something wrong with his mind and they're relegating him to the Hellions without much therapy or other help is because malice is inside his mind somehow? That's based largely on the presence of the other marauders in the book than any actual clues. It sounded better before Havoc died, though. Could she be stuck in his mind somehow, tied together with his Cerebro backup? Possibly. Very possibly here. Um, if we look to just another book in this uh, in this family here, we have X Factor, where Siren there is definitely <laughs> something going on in Siren's mind, and uh, she's been resurrected twice, and she still has it. So, if Havoc does have malice uh, attached to him somehow, there's a possibility that that could be all mucked up in the Cerebro backup. So that is a very interesting theory, and I wonder I wonder if that will play out here. I, I was wondering about that with Siren when she came back and she was still kind of, I don't know if she's possessed or, or what, but, uh, I mean, there's definitely still something wrong with her. And uh, I, I, it could definitely stand to reason that uh, Alex was resurrected with whatever kind of Malady or baggage that he had that he had perished with. So that's I don't know that that's a wrong theory. That's a, that's as valid a theory as any, I believe. Now Evan wraps up with maybe they want to preserve her and can't figure out how to separate them. Seems unlikely though. She seems that she, she seems like she would be a big problem for Krakoan security and secrecy. But I wonder what her status is right now. And I don't know. I don't know what Malice's uh, status is right now. I want to say the last time I even remember reading anything with Malice is, and it was when she, uh, and this is a you know relatively ancient story, when she got into uh, Sue Richard's brain and uh, made her do the uh, the four boob window, right? I think <laughs> I think that's when she was with Malice, or was it the boob window, or was it just like straight up kind of uh, bondagey kind of gear? I, it's been forever since I looked at that stuff, but that's. The last time I thought about Malice But, um, you know, Malice is obscure enough to uh, to fit in that Hellions book somehow I, I could certainly see it I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing if they ever tell us what's going on with Havoc's mind I, I have a few theories myself Most of them have to do with Alex himself kind of being gaslit by the, uh, the Quiet Council Either used as a mole or 
put in these situations to derive some mental anguish or mental uh, trauma, I suppose. Though, I, I couldn't tell you what the payoff for such a thing would be, so uh, my, my theory is probably very, very wrong. But uh, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on uh, that handful of subjects there. Thank you so much. But uh, that'll do it for the mailbag today. If uh, you would like to write in and be part of the mailbag, hey, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com, which is also the home of X-Lapsed Origins, a series of articles exploring some seminal moments that still inform the books to this very day. Uh, as you're listening to this episode, I believe the first installment of the Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Captain Britain is going up on the site. So if you're interested in that phenomenal run. Consider popping over to chrisisoninfiniteearths.com to check it out. There's also xlapse.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com for all the xlapse stuff. You can chat us up on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and uh, we're getting more members by the day, so thank you all so much for coming along for this ride. It's uh, really awesome to have uh, such an such an excellent community. Um, also, for your Chris and Reggie listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your aggregation applications. And if you like what you hear, please consider telling a friend. It would really, really mean a lot. But uh, that'll do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for listening and spending a little bit of your day with me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 156 of X-Lapsed, where, uh, well, if you listened to the previous episode, uh, you'll know that I started with a bit of a pre-ramble about how it was probably going to be a very short episode, because, uh, well, there was no mailbag, and it was an issue that I really, uh, didn't care for. 
I didn't account for the possibility or likelihood that I was going to decide to rant about how unpleasant I found the issue for an excessive amount of time, which uh, made the show a little bit longer than I was expecting it to be. That said, today's episode might very well be the shortest episode yet. Not because I didn't like the issue we're going to discuss today, it's just that there isn't a whole heck of a lot to say about it. And also, the mailbag is still sadly empty, so uh, hopefully that'll pick up again soon. But let's get into today's discussion. We're going to be talking about Wolverine, Volume 7, Number 9, had a March 2021 cover date and a legacy number of 351. Stories called Bidding War, written by Benjamin Percy with art by Adam Cubitt. Colors Frank Martin, letters VCs Corey Petit, designs Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits Basso White Sobolski, cover price $3.99. This one went on sale January 27th of 2021. Now before we get into it, uh, this issue is uh, funny because... This is, like, a DCBS is where I get my books. I've talked about that several times uh, throughout my tenure behind a microphone. And for the most part, they very seldom miss uh, shipments, you know. Uh, every once in a while, the, uh, something won't show up. But for a little while there, I was also ordering at the very last minute, and sometimes after the last minute. So I really can't hold that against them that I didn't get what I ordered if I ordered after the due date for orders to come in. But this issue of Wolverine that we're about to discuss here, this is the one, if you're not following along uh, in reading, this one has Wolverine's severed arm, or severed, like, elbow to hand, um, up on an auction block with his claws extended, of course. Now, I saw that one, and I thought it's a very striking cover. It is a very striking cover. And uh, I did not get this one in the shipment I was expecting it in. It was the only book missing from the shipment, and so I automatically assumed that, like, something huge happened in this issue because it's like, okay, maybe maybe they sold out. Maybe there's some unexpected first appearance in this book that, you know, blew up on the damn speculator apps or something, and they decided to hold this one back or withhold it from the orders. And uh, I even considered running out and buying uh, a copy or trying to track down a copy. And uh, that week I went to the shops and... Nobody was sold out of the book. Everybody had the book, and I was like, okay, I can wait. Uh, it wasn't like we were going to be recording this episode right away. I mean, this is an issue from just about two months ago, uh, real time. So I wasn't too concerned with getting it right away. But in the back of my mind, each of those times I saw it and didn't pick it up, I'm like, man, I'm going to regret that, aren't I? I was really, really worried that I was going to find out that, like... Like, you know, Honey Badger's third cousin clone is going to show up in this one. And, and now she's going to be a, the subject of a, of, a Mar of a Disney Plus show. And everybody's going to want this first appearance. And no, it wasn't that at all. It was just that uh, the book didn't ship for whatever reason. And actually, uh, the following month, when I got it in my DCBS bundle, I got two of them. So uh, I, I don't know why I got two of them. I know I didn't order two, but... Uh, I got two of them. Uh, if, any, if anybody really, really wants this issue, I, I could probably hook you up. But let's get into the discussion of the issue here. Now we open on the nine-panel grid's overachieving sibling here, the 16-panel grid. Well, only five or six of them have actual comics content, like sequential art in them. The rest of them are all a mosaic of a background. It looks really, really cool. I like it a lot. It almost looks confusing, but it's so easy to follow that it, it just really works. It's hard to really put it into words. 
Now, this is a flashback to a Team X mission from, quote, years ago. And it's Wolverine, Maverick, and Sabretooth. And we can see that old Victor is taking great pleasure in using his status as an agent to, well, murder people. Wolverine and Maverick try to call him out for this, to which he suggests that they're nothing but hypocrites. As at the end of the day, they're all nothing more than killers. Now our trio are extracted from the mission area, with Wolverine's narration waxing poetic about how he is a weapon, until he chooses not to be. Next up, an info page, and it's from The Secret History of Wolverine. And I didn't know there was one of those anymore. I thought we knew everything we needed to know. Well, actually, it looks like The Secret History of Wolverine is perhaps a book, maybe a blog somewhere. Uh, it, It has an author, but the name's been redacted here. The gist here is that Wolverine and Maverick made a pact to never turn into what Sabretooth has turned into, and also to never forget what they'd done while part of Team X. Now, it looks like Team X would mind-wipe them after each mission, but Wolverine and Maverick figured out ways to remember or remind themselves. Now, Wolverine would jot down notes in the margins of a book that he had stolen, and the book was The Book of Five Rings, which is an actual book, and I'm guessing it has a deeper meaning and connection to this story than I'm aware of, because uh, I am a uh, uncultured heathen, (laughs) and I don't know a whole heck of a lot about that book. Actually, I don't know anything about that book. Now, Maverick, he would develop a mnemonic device in order to help him to remember here, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Next up, a double-page spread of Roll Call and Cred, and our Roll Call is... well, it's Wolverine. That's it. Uh, Back to comics and back to the present. We've got Patch entering Room 13 at the Legacy House. We saw him get the key at the end of last issue. Here he's going through the door. And he's met by a pair of armed heavies who warn him not to make any sudden moves while they pat him down. Now, they don't seem to recognize him, either as Wolverine nor as Patch, which is a bit hard to believe considering we're in Madripoor, and I figure Patch's reputation would precede him, but what are you going to do? Anywho, during an elevator ride, they do the pat-down, and all that they can find is a nasty bit of Krakoan weed in his left ear. Uh, This is how he was going to be communicating back to Sage and Beast with, you know, what he's learning in real time. So they yoink the crud out of his ear and they toss it. So uh, Wolverine has, uh, he's got no ties to Krakoa right now. The doors open and our man is once again warned about causing any trouble. Basically, don't. Um, From here, we get the old Liefeld special where we actually have to turn the book sideways in order to read it. But this is a really cool page here. Um, We get to see Patch entering the main hall of the auction house here and there are some notables hanging out here. We got the Kingpin, he's here for the auction. We got some Order of Ex-Goofs. We got the leader of Zeno, the Peacock Guy. Uh, the Kitty Hellfire Club, Omenes Verendir here. Uh, Dolores What's-A-Face from the X-Desk, um, who, I gotta say, they can't seem to establish an actual look for her outside of just woman in wheelchair. She looks different just about every time we see her. Now, there's also this hulking dude with red hair and a beard sitting at the bar. I want to say we've seen him before simply because his design is so striking, but I couldn't tell you who he is. Uh, he has a cybernetic arm, too. Uh, he he actually kind of reminds me of uh, Mammoth from uh, the Fearsome Five over at DC, the uh, Teen Titans villain. He kind of looks like the New 52 redesign of him. Um, I'm guessing it's probably not him, though. Uh, maybe we'll find out more. Uh, we won't find anything out this issue, but maybe we'll find something out in subsequent issues who this fella is. Anyway, it's finally auction time, and we see some of the items up for bid. 
We've got Black Widow's cyanide-filled tooth, false tooth, um, a prison painting by Jigsaw. I don't know why anybody would want that. A goblin glider. Don't know if that's the one he was impaled on or not. Uh, the, cow- the cowl of Captain America from when he was thawed from the ice back in Avengers number four. The gravestone of Spider-Man from Craven's Last Hunt. Magnetic Man's gloves, and we'll learn a little bit more about them. Or we won't learn more about them, but we'll see more of them in action in a bit. And, as if the cover didn't already spoil this, we see the severed right hand of Wolverine. Don't know when he lost the hand. I, I, which hand was he missing during Age of Apocalypse? I, I think that was the left, so it probably isn't the same one. I don't know. Well, now the sight of his own hand causes Patch to shatter the wine glass he's carrying. And the Kingman hands him a hanky to clean up the blood. Wolverine does just that before dropping the hanky to the ground, which is... Both stupid and disgusting. Uh, thankfully, the Xeno guy immediately snatches it up. Uh-oh. It's worth noting, we see that Dolores Whatserface is wearing some interesting glasses, which identify Patch as Wolverine. Now, the next item up for bid is... Well, Maverick himself. He's uh, completely mind-wiped and ready for use. Uh, what's more, he's your ticket into Krakoa, if you so desire. And the bids rack up like crazy. Now, as a demonstration of what Mav can do, the auctioneer, who we're calling the Merchant, has one of his heavies try and attack. Maverick takes him down without even breaking a sweat. And so the bids keep escalating and pouring in. The Merchant then notices that there's someone very special in the crowd. Wolverine. The Order of X goofs all bow down in reverence because, of course, they worship mutants. The Kingpin just smirks. I'm pretty sure he already knew who Patch was here. Uh, Dolores taps her glasses, and then, of course, a big old fight breaks out. Now, as Wolverine is attacked by a bunch of the heavies, the merchant slips on the Magnetic Man's gloves and wrangles our adamantium-laced hero. Now, this triggers another 16-panel grid flashback. Uh, same sort of setup as the opening pages. 16 panels, only five or six are you know, sequential art. Uh, the rest are background. Really looks cool. And uh, this shows Wolverine getting a mind wipe back in the long ago. At least I think that's what we're looking at. We also get to see Maverick's mnemonic device, or hear it, I suppose. uh, And it goes a little something like this. Today is a victory over yourself of yesterday. Which, hey, look at that, is a quote from that Five Rings book that I know nothing about. Back to the present, Wolverine is stuck in a physical stasis due to the magnetic mitts and he utters the mnemonic device to try to get into Maverick's head. It doesn't work. So, uh, not, you know, never never letting himself get into the whole uh, definition of insanity thing, he does it again. He repeats himself. He repeats the mnemonic device, and, well, it works. Maverick grabs the merchant and holds a gun to his head. He looks to Wolverine, claims not to know who he is, but, at least for now, they're in this fight together. And we wrap up with a quote page, and it's Wolverine talking about Maverick. The gist here is that he likes him a lot, but doesn't completely trust him. That's the issue. Next time out, we're talking about X-Men. And I wish I were joking, um, but uh, it it has to do with the Shi'ar. Okay, we'll worry about that next time. Uh, Now, let's let's see if we can get out of this Wolverine issue to talk about here. Um... It wasn't bad. I liked it. I liked it quite a bit here. I like it when uh, Ben Percy is able to kind of wrangle in some of the more, I suppose, purple 
narration and stuff here. Uh, this didn't have a whole heck of a lot of that. We did see, you know, Wolverine saying, I'm a weapon, until I decide I'm not. But other than that, I mean, this was a fairly straightforward story. It was told in a very interesting way. I like, as I mentioned the last time we talked about uh, an issue of Wolverine, I like this concept of the legacy house, uh, yeah, auction house being a thing. It stands to reason that something like this would exist in the fantastical Marvel Universe, right? I mean, we've got auction houses in the real world, and people collect everything. Like, literally everything. <laughs> you can collect old clocks, old spoons, empty bottles. I mean, people collect all sorts of stuff here. So, in the Marvel Universe, why wouldn't people collect uh, superhero uh, and supervillain uh, paraphernalia, memorabilia, stuff like that? It... Uh, it definitely makes sense, and um, I'm not sure if this has been done before. I, I would assume that it has been. I just haven't read it before, so this is a very fresh and novel uh, sort of story for me here, and I'm really, really enjoying it. We do have some of those, you know, uh, suspension of disbelief situations here where nobody seemed to recognize uh, Patch. Uh, I mean, Patch, even if they don't know it's Wolverine, and I mean, they should know it's Wolverine, but even if they don't, they should know who Patch is. He's a uh, fairly notable name in Madripoor, I would imagine. Uh, he, he's there a lot. And he's always, like, in the middle of the action. So you'd figure that they might at least have heard of the guy with the uh, with the pointy hair and eye patch. I don't know. Now, we do see that the merchant calls him out as Wolverine here. Now, that we could take a few different ways. Uh, did the merchant recognize him? Was Wolverine being lord into this uh, into this auction house here. Did the heavies in the elevator recognize him, but just not want to draw attention to it because they needed him in position here? Or did Dolores, what's your face, tip the merchant off? Because we saw through her, you know, her Google glasses that uh, she was able to identify Patch as Logan here. And I mean, you look at Patch, you know who he is. But okay, we'll we'll suspend the disbelief here. So she knows who he is, and we see her tapping her glasses right before, uh, or right after, Wolverine gets called out and uh, exposed. I don't know what the story is with Dolores. Um, she seems to be presented in different ways depending on the book she's in. As we saw in Marauders not too long ago, uh, she and Storm had a nice conversation on the subway. And we even found out that... Uh, Dolores was somewhat instrumental in foiling the Amines Verendi uh, poisoning plot. So she seemed like an ally. But then in the prior issue of Wolverine, we see that she's like watching over uh, Logan and Bannister and looking very nefarious. And here, I'm really not sure what to take from this, uh, this scene here. Is she just there? Is she just a bystander? Or did she tip off the merchant somehow? And if so, why? You know, uh, I don't know if we'll get any sort of a uh, straightforward thing on her anytime soon. I know she's going to be at the Hellfire Gala. At least I assume she will be because she did get an invite. So maybe we'll get uh, on more firm ground with Dolores. Or maybe, maybe I'm just reading too much into this and seeing things where there actually is nothing. That is definitely a possibility. Um, uh, let's talk about the items up for bid here. I, I thought this was a weird little uh, assortment here. And when I saw the, the Magnetic Man's uh, myths there, I was like, what in the hell? Who cares about this? And I did a little bit of research, and I think the Magnetic Man has only shown up in like two issues ever. So it's like it, it seemed like a very, very obscure and pointless addition here. But those myths came in handy here because it was able to uh, stop Wolverine or 
temporarily stop Wolverine before Maverick's mnemonic device kicked in, but really neat use of, uh, you know, it was like Chekhov's magnetic gloves, you know? I, I really dug that here. Um, the other items were pretty cool, too. Um, the gravestone from Craven's Last Hunt, that's a story that I feel is very, very overrated. Not, not, a, not a huge fan of Craven's Last Hunt, um, but uh, hey, you know, it is iconic. It, you know, a lot of people know that cover of Spider-Man, you know, dragging himself out of the or bursting out of the uh, out of the shallow grave there with that tombstone in the background here. So that's a cool callback. Uh, Captain America's actual cowl from World War Two. That's that's really really cool uh, to see that here. Just a, a real neat assortment uh, of uh, of oddities and uh, antiquities, I suppose. But uh, really like the way they built this here. Um, now Maverick. Let's talk a little bit about the man of the hour here Who, uh, I don't remember anybody actually caring about Maverick all that much I, I, I don't know why he would be demanding such a Just an outpouring of bids <laughs> He's just Maverick um, I don't know that he's ever been depicted as anything all that special I know for the longest time, Maverick was just the guy who had the shortest-lived ongoing X-Men series ever when it got, uh, I think it was like 10 or 12 issues before it got canceled back in 1997, which was, at the time, a record where I think a lot of books these days uh, will never see their 12th issue, so uh, uh, the times change, I suppose. I still find it kind of, uh, I don't want to say inorganic or forced here, but uh, I suppose... There are worse characters to do it with than Maverick, and I have got nothing against Maverick. I just don't think he's quite as important as the story's trying to make him seem. I think this is just an opportunity to have Wolverine, you know, running with one of his old, you know, running buddies or pals or, you know, peers. And uh, this is just a means to an end to get there. Uh, It's interesting how they cite his ability to cross into Krakoa as some sort of a selling point where... If we're dealing with, uh, you know, mutants we can mind wipe, I mean, can't we just mind wipe any mutant and use them as a uh, as a passport into Krakoa? Isn't this something that could have been done before? I can't, can't they go to Deadpool's Island and grab that, you know, walking jello mold guy and, and, have, and have him walk him through the gateways? I really don't know what the point of that would be. And I also don't know what the point of going to Krakoa would be. What is the allure of a human not named Kane Marco going to Krakoa? Uh, it's not like you're going to be able to do a whole heck of a lot there. You're you're going to be overrun by hundreds of thousands of mutants. So, I don't know. I guess it's maybe just a reminder that this is what's going on in the universe. And maybe there's curiosity about Krakoa. I really don't know. But it's a fair enough story. I, I Nothing to get mad at here. And, uh, in fact, I, I quite enjoy it. And I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes Frankly, a Wolverine story not having to do with Russia or vampires or Russian vampires is uh, is a good thing. So I'll take what I can get. But uh, that's all I got to say about this 351st, allegedly, issue of Wolverine. And uh, as I mentioned, there is no mailbag today. The mailbag is still sadly, sadly empty. So uh, I tried to think of another way to end the program here. And... Uh, I figured, hey, maybe I could find the November 2020 sales figures, finally. And, uh, no, no, they're still not up. The November 2020 uh, sales figures at Comicron are still not there. And frankly, I'm not sure that they ever will be at this point. Uh, 
I just found out, and I'm I'm way way behind on news, but I found out that Marvel is no longer Diamond exclusive. They're now with uh, Penguin Random House for their distribution, and I guess Diamond can still be like a third party distributor for them, just distributing through Random House. But uh, yeah, Marvel's out of the Diamond game now, so I don't know how we're gonna get sales figures. I don't know how we're gonna get like a top three hundred. I don't know if that's a thing that's even going to exist anymore. So uh, interesting times ahead, I suppose And um, unfortunately, uh, it kind of leaves us kind of holding the bag Where we can't really track these things the way we used to And that's something I think I'm going to miss I, I haven't done it much of late But uh, yeah, I was, I was looking forward to doing it with these books here But that is uh, probably just not in the cards anymore I was going to take a look at Marvel previews, but we're going to actually do that in just a few episodes. We're going to get into the beginning of April before we actually talk about the books coming out in, I believe, May. Um, So, I suppose I can close out with another plug for the Facebook group, 90s X-Men on Facebook, where our friend Evan Bevins is starting conversations here. Last episode, we talked a bit about the discussion we had over, like, fantasy booking the upcoming X-Men team that'll be presented at the Hellfire Gala. A lot of fun conversation there. And another question he asked was, well, who's going to round out the Quiet Council? We've lost three members here. Or we're about to lose a third, I suppose. We've lost Apocalypse, we've lost Jean, and uh, if, uh, you know, if what Storm said in Marauders is true, we're going to be losing Storm as well. So... He asked, who do we replace these folks with? Now, this might be a weird question to be asking, considering that, you know, I am a little bit behind here. I'm probably about 20 issues behind uh, current day books here. So for all I know, these questions have already been answered. But for the sake of pretending we're back at the end of January here, like the book we're covering is... I decided to, uh, to give it a go, try to give it a shot here. Who do we replace these characters with? And uh, I only did two characters here I did not take Storm out of the equation yet Because, I mean, she's on the cover of the book that we're covering next episode She's on the cover of that issue of X-Men where they're dealing with the damn Shi'ar So, she's not gone yet (laughs) We know Jean is gone, and we know Apocalypse is gone So, to replace Jean, I was trying to think of I mean, that whole quarter is... Just classic X-Men characters here Nightcrawler, Marvel Girl, Storm And so I tried racking my brain With uh, you know classic X-Men characters Who might fit that spot here It's like Probably won't be Rogue um, Probably won't be Forge You know, I always think about These characters as being like the, the Claremont Run characters here The Claremont Run and before You know, not the Lobdell stuff on here and the only character I can, can come up with is maybe it'll be Banshee. You know, Banshee was part of the giant-sized team, and he has had a leadership role. He ran Generation X with Emma Frost, who's also on the Quiet Council. So maybe if they do fill these seats, yeah, you could do worse than Banshee, I suppose. Now, to fill Apocalypse's seat, I'm going to go back to the hot take I had a couple episodes ago here and suggest Amal Farouk. The Shadow King And this is of course the theory I had That not everything is as it seems As it comes to Amal Farouk As in maybe he's not quite as uh, sinister As the art is portraying him to be And you know what the pattern of behavior Tells us it should be here 
Maybe he is a good guy Maybe he does have the best interest of the students and the children at heart here Maybe he is Maybe he is an ally to the Krakoan way of life here So, I mean, that's a far-fetched theory But uh, it's the one I'm going to go with So uh, I'm thinking if we do replace those two characters It'll be with Amal Farouk sitting next to Magneto and Professor X and then we'll have um, we'll have Banshee sitting next to Nightcrawler and Storm for as long as she remains on the board. But uh, that's just another discussion that we're having over at 90s X-Men on Facebook. I'd like to invite everyone over to that group to take part and to chime in and all that good stuff here. If Facebook ain't your thing, hey, that's that's fine. I don't really know how to use it myself. So uh, if you would like to uh, share your thoughts on who is going to be replacing these characters, uh, without spoilers, of course, if this has already been rectified in the current day books, but uh, please feel free to hit me up. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. It's also the home of X-Lapsed Origins, a series of articles taking a look at seminal moments in X-History that are uh, back to being relevant even today. We're still focusing on our opening salvo of Otherworld, taking a look at the old Alan Moore, Alan Davis, Dave Thorpe, Captain Britain stories here. Uh, if you're following along, we just met the Fury. Uh, Mad Jim Jaspers is back. We got the quick and dirty on his origin. It's a good time. It's a real fun revisit, and uh, if you haven't read those stories, I encourage you to. And uh, if you just feel like reading what I think about them, hey, that's that's all the better. You can uh, pop over to Chris's on Infinite Earth and find all of that stuff. Uh, there's also xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. If you just want the xlap stuff, that's where you find it. Uh, there is the Facebook group again, 90s X-Men. And for all your listening needs, you can go to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, available on all your noise aggregation devices and applications. And if you like what you hear, please do me a favor and spread the word, share the, share the site, do all that good stuff if you wouldn't mind. I'd really, really appreciate it. But that is where we're going to leave it today. I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing some time with me today. It really, really means a lot. And as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.